Welcome to Steel Watching, which is the podcast for the steel fans among us. Remington Steel, that is. <laughs> Season one, episode 22. The last Who are you? Ep- I am Who are Eric. You? I am Eric. <laughs> I, w- I was getting there. <laughs> okay. I thought Canadians <laughs> were supposed to be patient. <laughs> no, of course oh. not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm Eric, and you are? I am enjoying my long weekend. Oh wait, my name Sarah. Sarah. Yeah. Sorry. So when 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 you introduce yourself, it's hi. My name is. I'm enjoying my long weekend. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, anyway, why not? episode twenty two, last episode of season one, last official episode. We will Woo! have a top five coming up, but last real episode. And everybody enjoy your, cool. your time with Murphy and Bernice because this is it. Yeah. Enjoy this them while they the last. last. Yes. <laughs> they're never coming back. <laughs> no. I mean, they're not dead or anything. They're just never returning. <laughs> no. We, we've lost them somewhere. Anyway. Well, deal we sur- lost them to a saxophone player in Denver. Yes. <laughs> so, Denver. Uh, Mile High City. Mm, can't breathe up there. Oh, okay. Just I was deal- confused. No. <laughs> it's like, Mile High? What? <laughs> Is it like the Mile High Club? No, is, get, is your, that, get is, your mind out of I'm the... Just, <laughs> family show, family show. <laughs> anyway, Steel in Circulation first aired April 12th, 1983, was written by Lee Zlotoff and directed by Don Weiss. I went with the TV Guide listing, but I have a point of contention with it. Ooh, TV Guide, take but note. But let's start... Yeah. Let's start with... What they actually say. Here okay. goes. It's touch and go as Laura and Remington try to thwart repeated attempts by a bank employee to end it all because he borrowed $50,000 for a few days to help a damsel in distress only to have both the doe and the damsel disappear. Okay. He didn't borrow okay. it. He stole it. I was going to say, borrow is not the word I would use. That's definitely. No. And it wasn't $50,000. No, it, it wasn't, wasn't. fifty thousand dollars. It was two point three million. Yeah, he only needed fifty thousand, uh, yeah. but yeah, he borrowed two point three million. Well, he didn't borrow it. Ah, he yeah. stole it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he See, intended now, to give it back. Now, so TV guy has secret, saying it. Secret borrowing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a bank, not a library. He can't just take it out and return it later. It's not how it works. Well, just saying. Let's let's try it. Let's see if it works. Anyway. Okay, you do it and tell me how that goes. (laughs) The episode opens with, I would say, one of the longer opening sequences. And for some reason, as I'm watching this, I want to break into the OJ song, For the Love of Money. Money, 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 money. (laughs) Speaking of money, I had a game I wanted to play to start this off. Can we do that? Can we do a game? Can we do a game, please? (laughs) Okay, we can always edit it out later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> so, I know I was thinking about money, like what the actual cash, right? I thought it might be fun cuz I don't see American money very often and you likely don't see Canadian money very often. So, 
I thought it would be fun to see how to see whether or not we know who's on the base of the bills of like each other's money. (laughs) It could be fun. Uh (laughs) Okay, so here's how it would go. I would give you some names and you tell me which number bill they're on. I'll I'll make it a little easier because like Uh, Canadian prime ministers probably aren't something a lot of people know about. (laughs) No, no, they're, they're not. So like, I'll give you a name and you tell me if it's on the 10, the five, the hundred, the 50 or the 20. And then you do the same for me. We'll see what we know. Okay. All right. You ready? All right. <laughs> All right. The first one, Sir John A. McDonald. He's on the Golden Arches. The go- what? McDonald. No. <laughs> McDonald's, no. <laughs> Sir, jo- Mc- Sir it's John McMoney. A. <laughs> McMoney. Mc- People often think our money is McMoney, but it's real. I swear. It buys us real stuff. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know who he is. So he's our very first prime minister. Very first. Yes. Okay, so I'm going to say probably they'd want to have something impressive for him. So like on the 10? Yeah, good job. He's on the 10. <laughs> See? Lucky guess. See? Lucky guess. All right, my turn. My turn. You give me a name and I'll guess I'll guess who's on it, what, what number it is. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson. Okay, I'm guessing he's a president. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> oh, he was, uh, yeah. It's not anymore. Okay. Um, the, I'm going to go with the 10 as well. I kind of cheated. <laughs> He's on oh. a $2 bill, which we oh, don't that is actually That's use anymore. <laughs> I could have used the $2 bill too, that we don't use anymore, but I didn't. Hey, <laughs> you, you, you made up the rules, which was no rules. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So, okay, so $2 bill, that's mean. Here, here comes yours. Robert Borden, who was also a prime minister during World War One. The 20. No, he's on the 100. Okay. Yeah. I was going to go with 100, too. <laughs> Your turn. <laughs> okay. Um, Andrew Jackson. Uh, he's on the, I'm going with what I've seen in movies. I think he's on the 20. Yep. Woo, got it. I got one. Mm-hmm. Okay, your turn. William Lyon Mackenzie King. He's our longest reigning prime minister. Five. Nope. He's on the 50. Okay. Your turn. <laughs> <laughs> um, Benjamin Franklin. Oh, I do know this. He's on the 100. Yep. Because it's all about the Benjamins. I've. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, Sir Wilfred Laurier. A lot of sirs in our money, like sir this, sir that. I think Robert Borden might have been a sir, too. They all get knighted. <laughs> it's a thing. The five, I'll say. Yeah, good job. He's on the five. <laughs> hey, if I stick with one, eventually I'll get it, right? <laughs> He's on the five. Yep. You're doing. <laughs> all right. Ulysses S. Grant. Oh, I have no clue. Um. Okay, so he's probably not. A, I know who's on the one. So he's either on the five or the 50 or the 20. Uh, 20? No, we already had the 20. That was Andrew. Oh, Jackson. we already had the 20. Okay, so he's on the, <laughs> either on the five or the 50. I'm going to guess the 50 because I'm assuming somebody more important is on the five. Yes. Okay, cool. He's on the 50. <laughs> Last one for, for ours. Because okay. I didn't include bills that no longer exist. 
Uh, the tw- <laughs> hey, that's that's a low blow. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth II. She's got to be on the one. No, we don't have a one dollar bill anymore. Although she oh, was when when we did have one, she was. We have the okay. Room, then I the win. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, she's still on a bill that we still have. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Then it's got to be the twenty. Yeah, she's on the twenty. Okay. Although hey. now it'll be Charles, I guess. Like, yeah. Hey, Chuck. <laughs> Yeah, good old Chucky boy. Yeah, and Lincoln. The five. Yep. Yeah, I think you got like three of them, and I got two, and only and those were only because of wild guesses. So that's I think probably because we see your money more than you see our money. Mm-hmm. Ours is color coded though, so it's real easy, right? Like blue is five, purple is ten, green is twenty, red is fifty, brown is a hundred. You don't even need okay. to look. You just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry. I've diverted us long enough. I just thought it might be fun. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so we see Alfred Hollis. He's very nervous. And in this whole sequence, he's very nervous the whole time. Mm. He's, he's at yeah. his desk. He's making phone calls. He calls somebody named Miss Hothmeyer, who... We really have no clue what she is or what she does or what her job is. He just no. He just calls her and tells her, "Well, the currency shredder in Destruction Room Three is acting up, so yeah, well, we've called the repairman. Cancel this afternoon's transfer from the vault and go on home." And then he goes down and collects a bunch of money while he's pushing an old cart around with his briefcase on top of it, and. He goes down and he talks to the security guy and lets him into the room. And the guy handling the money gives him $2.3 million, supposedly to go to destruction room number three, the one he just said was out of order. And then he goes up and goes to a room where he stuffs it all into his, his briefcase. <laughs> and Very confusing. Then eventually goes out to his car and stuffs it under the seat of his car. And then he's back yep. in his office, nervously waiting for the end of the day. And then he goes out to a parking lot to get in his car with all that money, and car's gone. And, of course, I forgot to mention that we saw a timestamp on this screen yeah. at the very beginning, Friday at 11.45 a.m. Yep. So after the end of the day, he goes out, doesn't find his car. And then the next day, which is Saturday, 9.18 a.m., we see a shot on a bridge, very high bridge, and the limo the steel agency limo drives onto the bridge and apparently it's had a flat tire. So Fred is out there working on the flat, trying to get it changed and steals on the phone talking to Laura. And <laughs> of course she's not happy because he's supposed to be at a meeting in the office. Yeah. And he says, well, look, you know, granted, I don't like the idea of having to come into work on Saturday morning, but I could think of a better excuse than a flat tire. This is true. He would have a much more elaborate excuse if it was, if it was fake. It would be something like murder most foul or. <laughs> yeah. Well, like he's coming up with that excuse here pretty quick, although true, uh, fake is a relative term. But we can see we jump back and forth between Laura's side of the conversation and Steele's. And Laura has a client in their office, a guy named Cutler, who's had a bunch of fish stolen. Koi. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Steele calls them carp. Carp, yeah. <laughs> He also calls him Cuddlefish. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, Laura's unhappy because he's not there. He's unhappy because he's having to go into work on a Saturday and he's got the flat tire. 
And as he's talking to Laura and they're fussing back and forth and she's trying to make like he's out on some important meeting or something. And that's why he's not there with carp fish. Cuttlefish. Steel. Yeah. So anyway, (laughs) as as he's on the phone talking to Laura, he sees a guy walking around and coming onto the bridge and walks up to the, like the bench at the side of the bridge. And he takes his jacket off and folds it. Or his suit jacket, not just a, you know, like a denim jacket, yeah. but a suit jacket and takes it off and folds it neatly and yeah. sets it on the bench. It's very it's Wilson-like. Like, okay. Yes. Yes. Very much so. Just square corners and yeah. And of course, Laura's still talking to him and explaining that, well, some of these koi fish are worth $25,000 a piece and Steele's kind of half listening and he sees this guy climb up on the side of the the safety grading that they've got on top of bridges to p- prevent people from jumping off and steel realizes which that, clearly isn't working. <laughs> <laughs> steel realizes, Oh, he's going to climb over that and jump. And he panics yeah. and runs and leaves the phone dangling. And Laura's is Mr. Steel. Yeah. Mr. Steel. <laughs> and she gets that frozen okay. rictus grin on her face. And she's like, yes, Mr. Steel. We'll, I'll tell him. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, it's, you know that's a it's got to be a tough situation for her, especially considering how yeah. bad she lies sometimes. Oh, although yeah, for sure we see we do see sometimes, and we'll see that later in this episode that she does a halfway decent job of lying sometimes. It's just when well, she yeah, has to. She's she's getting better. Go undercover. Sure. She's lousy. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, Steele runs toward Alfred. He grabs his pants and says, "Hey, look, I'm not in the habit of coming between a man and his maker, but." Yeah, there's got to be a better way out of this. Yeah. And, you know, we see this really, really quick, thankfully, shot down from the bridge, down to the ground below. And it's a long ways down. And it's like, it okay, you got vertigo. Thankfully, it's a quick shot. Yeah. I can't look but, over my balcony without getting vertigo. Like, I'm on the eighth floor. I look over my balcony and I'm like, nope. And I'm standing right back. For the longest time, we were afraid to go even near the, the edge of the balcony because it was like, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't do well. And uh, Ironically, I love roller coasters, but I'm not good with, like, balconies and leaning over things. <laughs> yeah, I'm not good with, I'm not good with it even just on TV. But anyway, uh, so Steele's trying to talk him out of it. And he says, you know, we all have our gray days. and Alfred says, well, I've had a great life, and I just turned to pitch black. Yeah. <laughs> Steele says, well, in every dark corner, there's always one's work to consider. No, nope, he hell. says, shot <laughs> to hell. <laughs> and um, it, it, everything Steele says, he just he just shoots down yeah. because it's gone from bad to worse to worse to worse to worse. Leave friends, don't have Steele, any. <laughs> Let yeah. her down when she needed me most. Oh, God. Poor guy. And yeah, it's just like. What do you do now? And so Steele has a brilliant thought. He says, well, look, if you're so determined to get down there, why don't I just drive you? (laughs) I think he's kind of missing the point when he says that. (laughs) I found that very funny because it's not that he necessarily wants to get to the bottom. He just wants to get to the bottom very quickly and with a sudden impact. It's the but, but, it's the method, but Alfred, not the destination. Yeah, but Alfred buys it. But Alfred yeah, buys it. And he says, oh, oh, oh okay. <laughs> yeah, he goes with him. <laughs> so, and then then we're at the office with Laura and Mr. Cutler. And codfish. she's vamping. Codfish, yes. Carpfish, actually, <laughs> is, is what it says in the script <laughs> or something. 
He says codfish. Okay. Yeah. They might they might have changed. Okay. It, I, or they might have said carpfish too. I thought it was codfish, but it said carpfish in the in the script, and so that's what I kept uh. putting down on my my notes. But <laughs> yeah, so she's vamping like crazy, trying to keep Cutler busy and occupied, waiting yeah. for Steele to eventually show up. Steele shows up, dragging Alfred along, dumps in a dumps him into a chair in front of the desk, and of course, you know, Laura's happy to see him, except that. Who is this guy? And and they both say to each other, can I see you for a moment? Yeah. <laughs> and so they walk out into Laura's office and Alfred starts to to stand up and say, well, you know, maybe I should just go. And, and No, no, no. You sit, sit, stay. And he tells Carp Fish, see that he does. So Laura and Steele move into her office and she is, is venting on him. And, you know, first it's a flat tire, then you hang up on me, then you show up late and you're dragging some guy in here and who is he anyway? And Steele says, look, I only brought him to the office because he was trying to kill himself. Laura's not buying it. She nope. is so wrapped up in her irritation and convinced that Steele's just making excuses, as he always does, that, yeah, you know, she's basically she's telling him, come on, you can come up with a more believable lie than that. And yeah. he continues ranting and raving and saying, look, I've never pulled a man off the bridge before. I'm not sure I could talk fast enough to stop him from trying it again. And, of course, Laura finally realizes that, oh, he's serious and he, just not making well, up excuses. It's one of those tone of voice, facial expression things. Mm -hmm. Like, this time he really looks serious. Yeah, and I think also this may be one of the – normally he does not ask her for help. No. There's only been a few times that he's done that. Uh, he did yeah. that with Felicia. He did that yep. with Daniel, although it was after the fact with Daniel. So yeah. for him to come to her and say, look, I need your help. I, I think that was one of the things that, that maybe triggered in her head. That, oh, wait, wait, wait a second. This this is not normal. So well, yeah. And, and it, he, it was absent of his like grandiose gestures and language and sort of embellishments. Mm -hmm. He was just like, I don't know how to do this. Like I pulled a man down off a ledge and I don't think I can talk. And for him to say, I don't think I can talk fast enough. That's his gift. His, his gift of gab, his, his particular skill, so to speak. He's panicked. Yeah. So she realizes he's serious and, and they say, well, okay, fine. We got to do something about it. But first we got to get rid of cop. Carf, but first we got to get rid of carp, carp, carp fish. I can't even say it. That's What's wrong with me? I thought his name was Cutler. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, then we jump to Alfred telling his story and this is where he says, well, he wasn't really stealing the money. It was just secret borrowing for the weekend, trying to help Angelica. That's still stealing. And We're still stealing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but let's not let's get call picky it it about is. details. I think the bank yeah. would get picky about that detail. <laughs> yeah. Well, they do. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so he says that Angelica was a very special young woman, the only one to ever make him feel like there was more to life than a steady job, a room with two windows, and a long book. And I've got written down here something that you kind of suggested earlier. This is all starting to sound like pre-vintage steel Wilson Jeffries. Wilson, yeah. Yeah, he very much, Alfred very much reminds me of, of Wilson in a lot of these mannerisms. And, mm -hmm. and he wants to be that steady nine to five. He, he wants to be that guy that has the 
predictable, safe life. But of course, that's getting blown all to hell with Angelica and the bank yeah. and the money and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then he begins telling what happened, which is essentially just a variation of the Nigerian prince scam. Yeah, uh, I only in this that too. Variation. <laughs> <laughs> There's no internet, first of all, in this variation. It's it's a in-person scam well, as opposed to a, you know, greetings and facilitations. I am writing to you to tell you about your new inheritance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but a scam is still a scam, and if it works, yep. it works. So, Very true. in this variation, Angelica claimed to have a great deal of money, just like the Nigerian prince, yep. but it was tied up in Spain, just like the Nigerian prince. And, of course, she said that she had invested all the money that she had on hand opening this specialty boutique of hers. But, of course, her suppliers were pressuring her for the rest of the collateral. And she's got to come up with it by the weekend because if we don't, they're going to shut her down. So they, I put that in sarcasm quotes, came up with the idea to borrow the money from the bank, you know, so they could show them $50,000 of solid American currency. And... I'm pretty sure it wasn't Alfred's idea. I'm yeah. pretty sure that she suggested it to him somehow and made him think it was his idea. It was probably one of those things where she made him think that it was his idea by planting the little hints and the little seeds of like, oh, you destroy so much money. What a shame. You know, I could really use. Mm -hmm. But of course, you couldn't do that. That would be wrong. And then, of course, him then no. but offering. Put, you know. Yeah, exactly. It was it was definitely sure. a leading a horse sure. to water sort of thing, and then he he drinks. Yeah. <laughs> it also makes yeah, me think of it was like the peanuts on the bar. Yeah, yeah. You, you when you said Nigerian prince, my head immediately connected to a, a scam, a type of scam that is currently very very popular, which is people pretending to be celebrities and then making friend requests, sending out friend requests to to their fans. Mm -hmm. And then getting those fans to invest in one of their business ventures or something. And then there was one story about a woman who started conversing with somebody she thought was Sam Hewen from the Outlander series. And this person, they talked, I think they were friends and in a romantic relationship. And I say that with air quotes for like a year or so before he suggested that, oh, she could help she could invest in his whiskey business and she had to send this much money over, but he couldn't do it because he was not in the country. And so she had to send the money to him and it was a whole thing and ended up taking her for like $30,000 when all was said and done because yeah, it was just one of those, mm -hmm. like they get you by personalizing it. Right. So, and this is what Angelica has done mm -hmm. to Alfred. She's personalized it. She's entered into this relationship with him. She's made him feel like he's the only one that can help her. And Oh, what a surprise. He's in the exact right position to do it. That's awesome. You know, and mm -hmm. Alfred just is a decent guy. Yeah. And it's always their money is tied up and yeah. we yeah. just need enough to cover it. And yeah, there you go. So anyways, as he's telling the story or after he's done telling the story, Laura asks him, well, you know, if you only needed $50,000, then why did you take? And then there's this really long pause. Million. Two point million dollars. Oh, that was the smallest they had. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Besides, when you've destroyed as many billions as I have, after a while, it just turns into paper. green paper. Yeah. <laughs> Until some of it goes missing, as Steele points out. Or in our case, multicolored. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> But, yeah, Steele points out that it's only green paper unless some of it goes missing. Yeah. And Alfred 
says that the plan was to take it back Monday morning, feed it into the shredder himself, and everything would balance. But now he's lost everything, the money, his job, Angelica. <laughs> and as he's been talking, he's been wandering around the office, edging closer Looking to the windows, the windows. And he looks at the windows yeah. and say, and asks, do these windows open from the inside? And Laura yeah. quickly gives the answer that you would think would be correct. No, it's a he, modern building. He, they should. Oh, yeah. The Century City Towers are pretty tall. You'd think that they wouldn't open. Yeah, you would think. But I, I couldn't find any definite information one way or the other, other than the answer seems to be, it depends. Hmm. Apparently, in some areas, there are building codes that dictate that commercial windows must be solid for multi-story buildings or, or right. skyscrapers, which is, I mean, make, it makes sense. You, you don't want it people does. opening the window and falling yeah. out. Or but, jumping. Right. But we know that some buildings have balconies. High buildings yeah, have balconies. True. So it doesn't kind of make a whole lot of sense for a building to have a balcony and then have windows that won't open. But Yeah, that's true. Apparently, it depends on a couple of factors. Does the local municipality or the local governmental body have building codes that require that they be solid windows? If there's not a regulation that requires that, then they can have opening windows, but then it becomes an issue of the designer's preferences or requirements because there's heating ventilation concerns. Hmm. Because if a window is left open, it creates problem with the HVAC efficiencies and right. in, in operation. Yeah. Then there's the cost of operating that HVAC. True. The cost involved in installing those windows and maintaining those windows, because I mean, after all, at some point, some of them are going to have to be replaced because they don't open yep. properly or whatnot. Or cleaned even, right? Yeah. And then there's the aesthetics issue. So there doesn't seem to be a def definitive yes or no to this. Some buildings can have them, some, some don't apparently, hmm. which seems kind of silly, but that's the way apparently it is. We're not even allowed to have those air conditioners that go in your window because if they mm -hmm. fall, if something goes wrong and they fall, they could land on somebody. But we do have... Well, and see, that's another safety issue is that if you have an open window, people can drop stuff. Yeah, yeah. Air conditioners or, or you know, <laughs> coins or whatever. Cigarettes. Yeah, I mean, if you're smoking and you toss your cigarette out. Well, that, that might not be that big of a deal, but, you know, you drop a quarter from 25 floors up. If it happens True. to hit somebody, that could hurt. Yeah. That could yeah. really hurt. So, yeah, you'd think that they would be solid windows, but apparently they're not always that way. Mm. So, anyway, so he asks if the windows will open. Laura says no to divert his attention. And then it Laura work. and Steele move off to one side and they have this little <laughs> conversation. Doesn't work. But in the meantime, they're having this conversation. Steele says they can't go to the police. It's likely that they're not going to be able to find a stolen car that has $2.3 million hidden under the seat in the yeah. next day or two. <laughs> and Laura Laura concludes that, yeah, from, from where he stands, jumping looks pretty good. And I mean, that's like, if you're admitting, yeah. oh yeah, his life is in the crapper. It must, it must look pretty yeah. good to jump. <laughs> Things are bad, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's understandable that he might feel that way, but if somebody else looks at it and says, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're right. They're like, yeah, your life <laughs> your really life sucks. sucks, dude. Sorry about it. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's pretty bad, but they hear a noise and they turn around and they see Alfred is climbing up onto the window ledge. Now, apparently yep. he's got the window open. Yeah. I couldn't really tell, but apparently he does. And he, 
they grab him and start hauling him out of the office and saying, yeah, we'd really love to meet this Angelica. His <laughs> comment is, hey, I thought you said these windows didn't open. Um, and I then what happens say, next? Can I just sort of interject something really quick? Yeah. This is an episode that is technically really dark in the sense that they spend the entire episode trying to stop a man from committing suicide. Mm-hmm. Somehow, somehow they do it in a way that doesn't make light of it. They do make light of it. I mean, mm-hmm. in the sense that it's comical the way that he's looking for a window and the way he's doing all this mm-hmm. stuff. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like they're mocking the concept of suicide in the sense. It doesn't feel like they're being insensitive about it. It, it, it feels more like, I don't know, they're, they're taking some, they're somehow managing to lighten it without mocking it, I guess, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Which is, isn't easy to do. It would be easy to come off as, Oh, it's funny. He's trying to kill himself, which would be very, it wouldn't hold up, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those subjects that you have to be very, very careful with. You do. Yeah. So the the ending of that scene, right after he says, I thought you said those windows didn't open. I would love to have a verified copy of the actual shooting script because. Yeah. Same. After he says that, Laura says, well, well, we were lying. And Steele says, oh, well, we get the odd loose one now and then. Those, <laughs> those two lines are not in the script. No. And so I'm wondering if they were added after the copy of the script that we have, which was like a month before that, less than a month before the air date, or if those were improvised lines by uh, by Pierce and Stephanie. It would be interesting. Yeah, to know. that'd be good to know. One thing I noticed when... He, Alfred was on that window ledge crawling up to get into the window to jump. Laura rushed kind of hurriedly to get to him. Steele didn't seem to be in that big of a hurry. He just sort um, of stood there. Yeah. I, 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 I guess his philosophy was, well, I already did this once. Now it's your turn. You it's know? your turn. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like with he the, sure the kid in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the kid in the middle of the night. He's crying. I, I, I got up and fed him last time. You do it now. <laughs> I got it last time. You need to. Yeah. <laughs> So next we see Alfred and Angelica's apartment building and Lauren Steele are guiding Alfred gently, but firmly guiding him to Angelica's apartment. And Alfred is still, you know, down on himself about having failed Angelica saying he doesn't think he could face her. But Laura somewhat condescendingly says that if Angelica is really all that he says she is, she'll understand. Mm. I mean, it's one of those things that if Angelica really was all that he thought she was, mm-hmm. I don't, I mean. But that's, it's a bit presumptuous on her part to to make that kind of a statement, yeah. I think. I think she's just saying it in the hopes of giving him something to hold on to. Because at the moment, he's got nothing. Oh, that could be. Right. And if, if she says, yeah, Angelica is totally going to dump you. That's not going to do wonders for his mental yeah, health. That's true. Oh, yeah. Here, let me throw a little more dirt on the pile <laughs> yeah. here. So they get to the door and Steele knocks and there's no answer. And Alfred says, well, she's not here. Let's go. And Steele says, no, wouldn't knock again. And Laura says, we'll wait until she comes back. Alfred makes the excuse of, well, he doesn't have a key and they can't stand out there in the hall all day. And Steele says, well, not a problem. And he reaches into Laura's purse or Laura reaches into her purse and pulls out a lockpick set and has it steel. That's uh, illegal. Poor Alfred. 
Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, look who's talking. Yeah. So. It's just kind of like such a wonderfully bizarre little moment because he he's recognizing that this is something that, that makes him uncomfortable, doing something illegal, breaking into somebody's house. And yet, he's it's kind of like how, again, Stealing $2.3 million is not a big deal. Yeah, it's kind of like how Wilson stole a body, but, you know, is, yeah. is still uncomfortable with going breaking into a monastery, right? I'm still the vice president of the bank. Yes, there is that similarity, too. So Steele gets the door unlocked and they walk in and the place is bare. Well, not really bare. It's basically abandoned. Yeah. There's a lot of furniture. There's a lot of sheets all over the furniture. And everything's covered with dust, which comes up to a question in just a minute. <laughs> so it looks like the place hasn't been occupied for a very long time. And when they step in, Alfred is dumbfounded and Steele says, are you sure this is the correct part? And Alfred just, he doesn't understand. And Laura picks up a newspaper from one of the sheet-covered pieces of furniture and blows dust off of it. And the dust blows into Remington's face and yeah. onto his suit. And in yeah. an apparently unscripted moment, Pierce gives a cough and brushes the dust off of his suit, <laughs> which, nice touch. Yeah. And, of course, Laura says what everybody's thinking. Nobody's been here for a while. Yeah. And at that moment... The apartment manager enters and says, hey, you know, what's going on here? And Alfred is, where's Angelica? Where's Angelica? And she, she has no clue what he's talking about. And he says, Angelica da Gama, she, this is her apartment. And it's, no, no, no. This apartment belongs to the, uh, the Dubins. They've been in Europe for the past year. And I've never heard of anybody named Angelica da Gama. And course uh oh alfred's expression changes from yeah incomprehension to exasperation to comprehension to resignation and to where's the window Steele, just excuse me for a moment and he yeah. tears out the door <laughs> and then of course laura and Steele, with laura still holding on to the newspaper they race after him they run down the hall up the stairs and onto the roof and they see alfred run to the edge and then he climbs up over the edge and onto the ledge, the, and he's standing, you know, like the, the Titanic, king of the world, <laughs> except it's yeah, king of the uh, three-story high dive. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so as they're trying to calm him down and talk to him, and, you know, they're, they're afraid to do something because they don't want him to do anything rash. He, he cries out, Angelica! And <laughs> Steele misunderstands, saying, well, we can all appreciate how upset you are about her. He says, no, look, no, she's it's there. Angelica. Yeah. And he falls <laughs> on, <laughs> and he falls off the ledge. Yeah. And Lauren Steele rushed over, and there's an overhang that he was on. And he kind of stands up and says, there's Angelica. And they see her driving off in a convertible car down on the street. Can we go back for just a second? I'm wondering about the apartment. I don't know about you. I mean, I, I'm not like a, I'm not a like super clean freak or whatever. But we we clean our apartment. It's it's usually pretty clean. And I gotta wonder, how did they get that much dust all over everything? Did somebody come in and just like pour it all over the? Because obviously Angelica had been using it and pretending it was her place. And then when she cleared that out, that was the question I had. Yeah. That was the question I had because he says, I was in this apartment. This is where I had my first sangria. 
Yeah. So it, she must have. How do you like? Because I don't. I, I. I. That's a lot of dust to gather. You know, like, it is. The only thing I can think of is that there was another apartment, maybe like right next to it, that was empty, and they switched the room numbers. This would be a lot of work just for a, a scam, but they switched the room numbers on the door so that he thought it was that room, and then they switched it back. But that doesn't make any sense either because, no, like I said, the that's building a lot manager of work for something that's that's nothing. The only thing I can think of is that she must have she must have covered everything and then I don't know brought in like dot like sand or something something that you would just sprinkle like all over everything to make it look as if it hadn't been occupied and then place the newspaper there. But what would be the point of it though? See that's well to that's to the discredit part that doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? That's part of the gaslight thing though. Because it's going to make okay. Alfred's story right. look less and less credible if he's saying, no, 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 I was in that apartment. And then even the building manager saying, yeah, nobody's been here. It's been empty. Yeah. But sand and dust are definitely distinguishable as True. being different. And it looks like, and they even talk about it being dust. So, yeah, that that's a tough one. Yeah. It's, it one is confusing. Unless you can get... Can you can you get can you get fake dust? I don't know if it's don't fake know. dust, but can you get <laughs> dust from like a prop store or something? I don't know. Maybe that would. Be I mean, a usually, like I, I know, suppose. for example, when they when they use snow, when they try to do wait snow anywhere that's not in Canada, they use like potato flakes. We can answer. The, we can answer the question just by virtue of the fact that they did it in the scene. So obviously, yeah, you can yeah. Get it. So they obviously had something. Uh, You're right. Oh, hello, dummy. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's a good point it's where's good Don point. Rickles when I need an insult it's, it's uh, fake dust in the scene so they have to have some type of fake dust so yeah, yeah. so okay so oh we're we're a bright uh, light we're two right, bright everybody lights right stop here. screaming at your podcast player stop screaming yeah. at your podcast player that I'm an idiot I know <laughs> <You're> it idiots <laughs> they had it in the scene what are you talking about sorry <laughs> we're not the sharpest crayons in the yeah. box right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's Saturday afternoon, 12.45 p.m. Laura, Steele, and Alfred are in the limo, and Laura's looking at the newspaper, and this is where Alfred says, but I drank my first glass of sangria yeah. in that apartment, tasted my first smoked oyster. I know she lived there. And Laura surprises Alfred by saying, yeah, she believes him, because according to the landlady, the apartment's been empty for the prior year, but the newspaper that Laura had picked up and was still carrying yeah. and had with her in the limo was only a week old. So Steele asks if she's suggesting Gaslight, which is yeah. our first movie reference. And of course, Alfred doesn't, doesn't have a clue what they're talking about. And Steele says, Charles Boyer, Ingrid Bergman, MGM 1944. And interestingly enough, the term is now used in psychology, widely used in psychology to reference anybody that is attempting to make you question your sanity or it's, it's a term used in say relationships and things like that, where if you are in an abusive relationship, oftentimes you are being gaslit by the other person, which of course corresponds mm -hmm. with the plot of the film where one person is being made to feel like, or doubt their reality, doubt their sanity, doubt their experience or what they're seeing or feeling. So you know, if you've got two people that are fighting and they, the other person saying, well, no, you're crazy. I never said that. Or 
you're thinking this or you're thinking that. So it's it's now like a recognized psychological concept of gas gaslighting. I even researched a definition of it. So basically, it's a mental... Not all real-life examples are so diabolical. To gaslight someone is to make them doubt their reality or their sanity. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah. It's interesting how something that doesn't necessarily mean one thing grows to mean that just because of how it's used at some point. Yeah. And and I doubt anybody who's ever used that term because I, I know people that have said, oh, yeah, he you know that person's totally gaslighting you or I was gaslit and probably don't even realize it was ever from a film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, after Steele makes that movie reference and Alfred has no clue what's going on, what they're talking about, Laura tries to connect the dots saying that, well, Angelica appears to vanish without a trace just the day after the money does. And of course, the light starts going on in Alfred's brain and he gets more agitated when when he realizes that Laura's suggesting that his car being stolen with the money in it. Wasn't a coincidence. (laughs) Really? You think? (laughs) Steele tries to calm him down saying, no, 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 wait a minute. I mean, it might be. It's not necessarily sinister. Hundreds or dozens of cars are stolen every day in, you know, in the area. Hundreds even. Of course, we all know that it's. It's too coincidental to be a coincidence. And oh, for sure. Alfred, yeah. uh, he's, he's got the bit in his teeth and he's running with it. And he says that Angela knew that he'd be taking the money out instead of destroying it. And that Laura's implication is pretty clear. Angelica took it. Yeah. And Laura tries to change the direction of the conversation and get Alfred's mind off of Angelica's possible, probable betrayal, asking about the boutique she opened. What was the name of it? Broken Promises. Despite the irony of the name. (laughs) (laughs) Despite the irony of the name, there is no irony in Alfred's voice when he says that. Broken promises. No. <laughs> it's 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 not irony in his voice. It's it's more like sadness and Yeah. And From a business perspective, I get that it was it's like a punk shop, but yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. It seems like bad luck to name your store broken promises, but and it's not even her store as we find out, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And of course he realizes that apparently Angelica was just using him and Steele again tries to reassure him that by saying that Sometimes you have to look beyond the mere facts. (laughs) And Alfred appears to calm down momentarily, saying, yeah, he he understands now. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah. After this calm, quiet moment, he leaps across Laura's lap and grabs the car door and opens it, trying to throw himself out. And, of course, Laura grabs Alfred and still grabs Laura. And all three of them are hanging out of the car. And And that's one of the the armrest of the door that's wide open. Yeah. Yes. That's one of the scenes we see in the yeah. opening credit sequence. <laughs> and it's it's one of those things I, I, I sort of thought this as I was watching through the episode that neither one of them are very good at at talking. Now granted this is not their profession. They're not negotiators mm-hmm. on, on suicide people who are trying to commit suicide, but neither one of them are very good at giving him a reason to live. Like they're literally they're they're the few times where they do attempt to reassure him it's blind platitudes and things are going to be fine. I'm sure it's fine. That's yeah, it's not good. Yeah. It's, it's one of those, every time you open your mouth, you just make it worse. Yeah. Things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And they're always saying the wrong thing, but yeah. So they're struggling with Alfred to try and pull him and themselves back in the limo. And of course we hear the truck horn blowing 
And Steele glances up through the window, sees the semi headed their way. And (laughs) with one final desperate effort, they managed to get Alfred and themselves back into the car and the door closed just as the truck passes by. And as they're sitting in their seats, trying to recover from their near fatal ordeal, (laughs) Laura says, well, you know, I've just had another thought. Yeah, let's let's try something else. Let's. Yeah. Sounds like a good plan. Yeah, it really does. So. We see the inside of an apartment, paintings on the wall, stairs climbing to an upper loft area, and we hear the sound of a persistent and repeated door buzzer. And I love the description given in the script. Inexpensive bachelor chic. Lots of stereo gadgetry prominently (laughs) placed with a secondary motif of sports equipment, baseball gloves and bats, basketballs, fencing foils hung on the walls, trophies here and there, etc. The door buzzes. It's one of those ugly buzzers you always plan to replace, but never do. <laughs> That's very specific. I love it. I love it. And it is. That is an obnoxious buzzer, I'll tell you. Yeah, it is. But then we see an obviously irritated Murphy coming down the stairs, dressed only in his boxers, trying yep. to put on a t-shirt, hollering, all right, all right, I'm coming. <laughs> and this is the first and last time we see Murphy's apl- uh, yes. Murphy's place. Mm-hmm. Yes, We've seen Laura's, we've seen Steele's, we haven't seen Bernice's, no. but yeah, the one and only time we see Murphy's. Yeah. He battles to the door, opens it a crack, sees Laura, and she just pushes her way in, followed by Steele and Alfred. No. Hey, Murph. Hi. Sorry to interrupt in? you. <laughs> yeah. No, we, brought a, we, we brought a three bean salad. Yeah. Nothing. And a suicidal um, client. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we've got so, some salad and sadness. Yeah. After their insight, she insincerely apologizes for barging in on a Saturday. But they need a favor. Steele says it'll only be a few hours, and Alfred just needs somewhere to quiet to collect his thoughts. Yeah. And, of course, we see Steele start collecting things around the room that could be, yeah, yeah, yeah might, <laughs> might, somebody might use to hurt themselves, like <laughs> it's baseball like bats, golf clubs. He's basically baby-proofing the apartment, but for... A grown yes. man who is in the depths <laughs> of despair, right? Like when you when you have a baby, you go around, you find all the things that they could they could hurt themselves on, all the corners of the table that they could hit or whatever. In this case, it's it's a grown man, but yeah, same concept. All the locks on the cabinet so they can't get out the yeah the cans and jars of things and yeah yeah pretty much. <laughs> so, and they're doing all of this, and Laura's doing something, you know, closing the windows, locking the windows, presumably. And they're totally ignoring Murphy. And he's, he's, wait, guys, this is not exactly the best time. You know what I mean? And Murphy, he he says, I don't know what's going on. And ordinarily, I'll do anything you ask, but you specifically told me you could handle the missing fish client by yourself. And and then, of course, we find out why Murphy's so distressed. (laughs) She's coming down, buttoning up one of his shirts. Saying, Murphy, I thought you were going to get rid of whoever was at the door. Yeah. (laughs) Awkward. Can I say, go Murphy, you know, get your, (laughs) get your groove on Murphy. Like he's moving on. I like it. I like this look on Murphy. Yeah. Well, um, yes. In general terms. Yes. Specifics, yeah, I, I I have issues, but anyway, we'll get to that. Okay, no, no, no. I want to know what those issues are. <laughs> let's let's get into those issues. <laughs> Sherry, what Sherry? I love Sherry. Sherry. She's just well. I didn't have a problem with her to begin with. 
But as we go through, it's like, oh, I'm an expert at this. Oh, I'm an expert at this. Oh, I'm an she, expert at this. Like, so she's your, she's our deus ex machina, right? We need a character who can do a bunch of stuff for the purposes of the plot. But I will say, I'm curious. Here, I had a question. Where do you think they met? Because it's not really specified. She says they met last night. But we don't. Was it a was it a club? Was it? I'm like, thinking. Well, my first thought was a singles bar. A bar was it? Yeah, because I, I mean, I can't see Murphy going to a club. He's not a clubber. I can't see him, you know, dancing at a rave or whatever. But is he going to singles bars too? Like that doesn't really scream Murphy to me either. It doesn't, and it also doesn't scream. Sherry. Psychologist. Like she seems, no, she seems unless, more of an unless adult. she was there studying. Well, I guess I'm not saying it's not adult to go to a bar, but she doesn't seem like the kind of person that was going there just for a pickup. And neither is Murphy to yeah. me, the kind of person that goes just for a pickup. So did they meet in a bookstore? Was it a, it, she was behind him in the, in line at the grocery. A book Car- like a, somebody needs to write that fan fiction. Because, yeah, I just, and, but also she makes the comment of how she didn't tell him she was a psychologist because she doesn't get any action if she does. So clearly they were maybe somewhere where that was a possibility. So, yeah, which is why I thought of a singles club to begin with is because that's usually where you go trying to find some action. Yeah. Maybe he was speed dating. Did they have speed dating back then? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if they had that back then. I, I I never did that, so I don't know when I it started. I've never done it either, so yeah. <laughs> I was really bad at dating anyway, so oh, same, <laughs> trying to do same. it quickly. No, that that really wouldn't have worked. That really no. wouldn't have worked. No. So anyway, they're all embarrassed, and yeah. Steele is you know he's still holding various objects that he's collecting <laughs> his with full. his mouth open like a codfish, which <laughs> to me it looked like. I, it reminded me of something out of something out of Mary Poppins, you know, where she tells the boy, "Close, close, close your mouth. We are not a codfish." So, yes. which also ties into Mister Codfish, Co- Codfish, 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 Cutler, yes, Cutlerfish. And so, yeah, you know, they say, "Oh, sorry, uh, we've come at a bad time, have we?" Uh, yeah. Understatement. Seal tries to save the situation by saying, "It's an honor to meet her at last." Yeah. Oh no, 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 no. Yeah. It just gets worse. It just gets yeah. worse. Yeah. And he says that Murphy's told her told them so much about her, which is I I mean But we only met last night. If you're night. gonna go for a lie, make it safe. Yes, we only met last night. Yeah. Make it a safe lie. So oh Murphy had not ever talked about you. Murphy, how are you doing? Yeah. How are you? Something yeah. that you can get nice out of. Nice to meet you. I'm I'm Mr. Steele. Murphy Michaels works for me, and you are that would have been a much better introduction. Just a thought. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Anyway, Steele tries to cover his dignity and his faux pas by putting his hand on Sherry's shoulder and asking if, by any chance, she knew how to brew a serviceable pot of tea. And she looks down at his... Uh, this was interesting. She looks down at his shoulder very suspiciously. Yeah. And asks, well, why tea? You know, it's like, why are you touching me? And Steele responds, <laughs> tea's mature civilized and he thinks that in a few moments they're going to need to be as mature and as civilized as possible i would also when they interrupt murphy's weekend totally yeah and poor murphy i mean he's clearly hoping to get more action 
so to speak. But I would also point out that the very first episode when he met Laura and Bernice, and this will circle back at the very end of the episode, Bernice offered to make some coffee, some tea, a fresh pot of hot water. Mm-hmm. And now he's asking Sherry to make some tea. And I mean, British stereotype, right? Tea, mm-hmm. tea is the cure for everything. Tea, tea fixes everything. So, of course, he circles back around too. I think we're going to sure. need to be as mature and civilized. And tea is such a civilized drink. So, it's quite... It's, and yeah, Sherry is not... I, I do yeah. like the fact that Sherry is not charmed by him immediately. She's, like you said, looking down at her. She's no. like, why are you touching me? Who are you? I don't... <laughs> so, yeah. Cute. Yeah. Cute little scene. So after Steele makes that comment about the tea, everybody's obviously still, still uncomfortable. Murphy looks away from Steele with a disgusted look on his oh, face, as happy. you would expect. You know, he is great. not You're happy. Gonna, no. And, and Laura has a look on her face, uh, almost like she's swallowed something that she, d- disgusting, but she doesn't want to show it. And yeah, Alfred's I think face she's, is a blank. And I think she's just not used to seeing Murphy as a... I don't want to say sexual person because that doesn't really feel right. But as a, she didn't see him as a as a viable he's got a life. partner. Yeah, she's surprised to see yeah, that she, he, she, he's got a life. That someone else sees him as a viable romantic partner, right? So I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's kind of like seeing your your teacher on a date. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> Would you know anything about that? No, uh, I just mean like and, to, to see that he is more than just work. Yeah. And again, this is another line that closes this sequence that isn't in the script that we have. Right. Steele says, excuse me, my six iron is slipping, <laughs> uh, which <laughs> kind of humorous. <laughs> that had to have been an ad lib. Because he's he's holding all the stuff, right? It, it starts it to, almost, yeah. yeah, yeah. It it's almost seems like an ad lib, yeah. It's a good one. Well, we jump to the boutique, broken promises, which appears to cater to the punk scene, as we yep. kind of mentioned earlier. And Laura comments that it's hard to imagine Alfred getting caught up with someone who likes to wear all this, as she puts it. Yeah. <laughs> Inside, Oof. they approach a mannequin, which has a dog collar and. It turns out it's not a mannequin. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's actually the lady who owns the store. She says, hey, if you're looking for someone to play with, go down to one of the boulevards. We're strictly trappings here. Yeah. And Steele tries to cover by saying, oh, I was just admiring your um, <clears throat> necklace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she tells He's him. really out of place <laughs> here, which her is great. I love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. She tries to tell them that no necklace isn't for sale, but is there anything that they want? And they say, no, they're just waiting for Angelica because they're supposed to meet her there. And she says, well, you're in for a long wait. The deadbeats that she fires don't come back, especially yeah. when they owe her money. So Angelica doesn't own the store. No, no, she no was surprised there. So Laura, sensing an opportunity to get a lead on Angelica, takes advantage of the fact that Angelica owed a long distance phone bill to this lady. And says, well, oh, those must have been calls to our casting director. And if you'll just let me see the bill, I can verify the number and we'll, we'd be glad to reimburse you. Which, of course, is just her way of getting the phone number. Because once they got the phone number, they can trace who she's been calling. Maybe that'll give them a lead. This is good improvisation on her part. It is. And it's, it, 
that, that's the thing about Laura is that in these little brief moments, and there's another one that comes up later. Yeah. In these brief impromptu moments, she's she's okay. It's when they're planned out and yeah. they're extended scenes of undercover. She's not that good. No, she tends to fall apart with her story. Her story tends to fall apart. But here, this was a sort of, like you and said, she she's overactful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's planned it out. And so she overacts what she's planned out. Whereas when it's spontaneous, off the cuff, it's, it comes off as more natural. Yeah. So, hey, you're casting directors, huh? What are you working on? Well, a punk version of Gone with the Wind, <laughs> which <laughs> that's what Steele says. And Laura looks at him with one of those. Seriously? That's what so you're going with? with you? Looks. <laughs> anyway, they, they tell her that Angelica is the person they had in mind for their Scarlet. And any idea where we might find her? And the lady says, sure, lingerie. Steel, of course, misunderstanding. He says, ah, a bit of weakness for the silken satin, eh? <laughs> and uh, yeah, she gives him a look of pity. Yeah. And explains that it's a club on Sunset. And Angelica had mentioned it a couple of times. So at this point, Laura says, oh, yes, this was our phone number. Here's your here's your bill and here's some money. And Can we talk about their phone and Steele's little comment on the phone? Yeah, I was going to say, Laura asked to borrow the phone and Lay says, sure, it's right there. And it's the hand handy. in the, the stomach yeah. of the mannequin. Yeah, yeah and Weird. Steele's comment of handy. Yes. I, I just, it's it's such a bad just, joke. I, I really yeah. enjoy it. And I, I don't... <laughs> It had to have been a custom job because I don't remember anybody ever having a phone inside of a mannequin stomach. I remember, not mannequin stomachs, but I remember back in the the late 80s and early to, I want to say even to late 90s, there being different types of phones that were made mm-hmm. out of different things. Like hamburger phones or like little sort of novelty phones that you could own and buy and whatnot. And obviously those are not a thing anymore. But yeah, that is definitely... Its own thing. Never seen. But they were, they were small yeah, they tabletop were small. <laughs> devices. You know, this that, is clearly, that looked yeah. like something that would be on a table. But this is, yeah. yeah, a whole mannequin standing there. Uh, anyway, over at Murphy's apartment, Sherry is talking to Alfred, but <laughs> she's going a bit off the deep end of, of herself and telling Alfred that he must really be feeling hopeless. Hopeless. <laughs> Turmoiled. Frustrated, despondent, panicked, enraged, lonely, excited, and exiled. You want to end it all too, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, if he wasn't trying, trying to, <laughs> wasn't of the mind to end it all before, he is now. He's definitely now. Like, she's just literally laid out all the reasons, you know? <laughs> yeah. But I, do, I think she's trying to empathize. She's well, attempting she to empathize. She is, but she's doing a really bad job. It's, it's really, not great. Again, it's not great. another person who just doesn't know how to say the right thing. It's hard to know what to say. I guess it, for a psychologist, she should know what to say because that's literally her job. But yes, I think for an average civilian, it would be hard to think of the right thing to say that would both validate what he's feeling and give him a reason to keep going. Because you don't want to pretend that and this is something that, as a parent, you've probably experienced this too, where your child's upset about something, deeply upset about something that really doesn't matter, but mm-hmm. you have to find that balance of 
empathizing and validating with what their feelings are, like I understand you're upset, but also keeping them from taking it to a more, you know, having a temper tantrum or freak out or whatever you want to call it because it's not that big a deal. So she's trying to find that middle ground of naming all of his feelings and and validating them, but she does a little too much, a little too much validation of the feelings. Yeah. And not enough of the here's why we, we you here's why you should keep going. Here's what you might still have to live for. Yeah. It's it's all the it's it's all his feelings reinforced without any kind of direction away from them. Yeah. So yeah. And of course Alfred misunderstands because it's easy to misunderstand what she said. Oh, for sure. She's uh, Alfred says, Oh, so you want to end it all too? <laughs> Which is, <laughs> she says, No, I've got a PhD in psychology. Which of course <sighs> Which, Murphy, uh, I'd, I'd like to see the Murphy's head that. perks up and says, I thought you told me you were a stewardess. <laughs> Which, <laughs> and yeah. This is where you're lying. You, uh, only she tells it to Alfred, not to Murphy. She says, you tell a man you're a doctor of psychology, you end up going home by yourself. They're yep. all afraid you're out to analyze their performance or something. At least as a stewardess, I get a chance of getting lucky. And yeah. I got to wonder. Makes me think Singles Bar. It, it does. It makes you think Singles Bar. But I also wonder, would this be something that would be intimidating? I can't speak. So asking you as a as a man, would it be intimidating to have a woman who is a psychologist to to, to start dating that person or even just to meet that person in a uh, date like capacity or singles capacity? Because I got to think maybe there is something to that in the sense that you'd always be kind of wondering maybe in the back of your head, is she trying to analyze me? Not even just your performance, but just analyzing in general. Yeah, well, you know, she specifically mentions analyze their performance. So yeah, uh, that that I don't know, I don't I don't know if that would be a concern necessarily right away because presumably you take some time to get to that point. Well, yeah, but you would think. I would I would say that the answer is a qualified answer because if the person is really good at their job, hint she's not. <laughs> they're not going to come on with that attitude that makes you think that they're going to analyze every little thing you say and do and think and behave. And, you know, they're not on the job when you're meeting them in a social situation or dating situation or whatever, but Sherry is not good at her job. She's always (laughs) on the psychology thing. At least that's the way she comes off is that, yeah, she's, Concerned about this because that's how she responds to people. She's experienced this before because she comes on too strong. Yeah. But I also wonder if, if this is her way of like, she sees this person who is clearly in massive distress. It's she's not on the clock, but obviously if you were trained in that profession and you're, you have somebody in front of you who is, who has tried to commit suicide recently. Uh-huh. And I'm not saying she did a good job of it. I think we both agree that it was not a great job of it, but she would attempt to be on the clock, so to speak, to try to talk him down. And But this is where the, the, the conundrum with Cherry is because she she says she's got a PhD in psychology and then she uses the term like, if, if you say you're a psychologist, you, you don't get lucky. And I'm, mm-hmm. okay. I mean, I guess a psychologist could say i want to get lucky but it just it feels more of like something murphy would say as opposed to 
Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of like, I think she's sex positive. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> I, I just, from the way she comes off in talking to Alfred, she just seems like she is, she's not like a, a light that's on a dimmer switch. that has got various levels. She's just yeah. a straight on and off. And when she Fair. goes on, yeah. she is just full bore, you know, bull in the China shop, full on. That, yeah, that's how much that's she's enough. full on. And and that's what she's doing here with Alfred. She's just bowling the China shop, bowling him over. <laughs> yeah. She's not good at her job. I'll tell you that right now. I wouldn't want her as a psychologist. <laughs> so <laughs> let's see, where were we? Oh, yes. She was talking to Alfred. She gives him the story. The phone rings. Murphy is annoyed he, when he answers the phone and he almost snaps Laura's head off. We only hear half of the conversation, but it's clear his weekend is being spoiled and oh, yeah. his irritation at it is radiating out toward everybody in every direction. And yeah. his comment is, yeah, Laura, he's all right. No, nothing's happened. Absolutely nothing. He's not <laughs> talking about Alfred. <laughs> and, uh, uh, obviously, Laura gave him the phone number that she got from the phone bill. And he says, hey, it's Saturday. How am I supposed to track down? And, uh, yeah, Murphy says, okay, fine. Give me the phone number. And he starts writing it down, and he's repeating it back to Laura as she gives it to him, which as is pretty good practice usually to make sure that you get the information yeah, right. Yeah. And as he's doing it, Alfred suddenly jumps up and says, hey, that's the bank. And so Murphy's, what? I got a couple of comments here. Number one, couldn't Laura have just called the number? Why, why did she yeah. need to get Murphy to track it? Couldn't she have just phoned it to find out it was the bank? It, it doesn't seem like a job she needed Murphy for. This one seems contrived. I suppose you could make the argument that if they called, it would tip, tip somebody off. But they didn't know where they would, they wouldn't have known where they would be calling. It's one of those things where yeah. you could, you could call it and just say, oh, I'm sorry, wrong number. Mm-hmm. And then, but the other possibility is it was they figured it was a business line and it might not be answered on on a Saturday. True. Um, the other comment that I wanted to make, or rather, rabbit hole, I went down. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you went down this rabbit hole, but the use of five 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 for phone numbers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided to to Google. I didn't go down that rabbit hole, but I'm familiar with it. Yeah. So I decided to find out why, because I I mean, assuming we all know the basic that they use it to make sure that they have a standard number that they can just use in movies and television. But mm-hmm. I, I, I Googled it and this is what I came up with decades ago, phone numbers being very different in those days, you needed an operator to complete the call. So mm-hmm. phone numbers began pretty easily with a recognized word followed by the numbers. So for example, you could answer, ask the operator for, you know, Pennsylvania six, 500, but over time, the words were, 5, were replaced with digits <laughs> that corresponded with the first two letters of the words. So the PE mm-hmm. of Pennsylvania became 6500 became 736500 as the letter p was found on the 7 etc cetera, etc cetera, right that worked mm-hmm. fine until it came to the 5 key which corresponded to the letters j k and l not many major cities began with those combination of letters so the phone companies kept 555 numbers for internal use only and it became the number for directory assistance and then when movies and tv shows began using phone numbers more frequently in their plot lines People who actually own those numbers started to complain that they were getting too many prank phone calls. 
So the phone companies reserved 555-0100 through to 555-0199 for fictional use. And some films as far back as the early 60s used the 555 prefix. And it, it even added, the Google thing that I found even added that in the mid-70s, the running joke on the Rockford files was that every episode began with private eye Jim Rockford getting a message on his answering service from someone chasing him for money. And a close-up of the phone revealed his number to be 555-2368. So, yeah. I just uh, thought that was interesting. Because I, I knew that they always did it in movies and TV, but I didn't know where it came from. So, I, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes it's not just movies and TV that did it. Some songs, well, I'm trying to think. There was a a song, what, 20 years ago, Jenny or something, that had a phone number in it. And people oh, yeah. used to call that. And apparently it was actually the phone number for that person. Uh, the Eight, person who six, wrote the song seven, five, used that phone three, number oh, for that nine. person. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and and then also TV shows have, uh, I think, I'm trying to remember, some TV shows I think have in the past used actual phone numbers that they set up specifically yes. yeah. knowing that people would call that number. And so they use the number in the script. P- uh, people would call in that number on an impulse and it would get some message or or whatever it was, something related to the show. Well, one of the other examples on here was Bruce Almighty. And in that movie, God contacts Bruce via his pager. And that was one of the ones where they didn't use 555. The number that showed up was 7762323. No area code was given, but people started calling the number all over North America to see if God would answer, which led to a lot of angry people <laughs> with the number 7762323 having to deal with those calls. One of them was a pastor in Wisconsin who would respond to the question, are you God, by saying, no, but I can take a message. So for the DVD <laughs> release, it was changed to a 555 number. <laughs> yeah. So I just thought Very that was good. interesting because I had never looked into why we use those numbers. Good answer from that minister. So anyway, yeah, right? <laughs> um, after Alfred after Alfred says, hey, I recognize that phone number. It's somebody at the bank. Don't know who the extension belongs to. Murphy tells Laura, yeah, maybe I can track down that phone number after all. And so then we see quick back at the store. Laura's concluded her call with Murphy and tells Steele that the calls that Angelica was making were to the bank, not to Alfred, some other extension. And, of course, Steele suggests that there's obviously an accomplice. Uh, They conclude that there could have been someone else inside the bank who knew what Alfred did, knew that he was a loner knew that he would be easy prey and could set him up with a pretty girl with a sad story to get him to borrow the money. They steal it out from under him, turn, yeah. And turn Alfred into the perfect Patsy. I mean, after all, you can't go to the police, right? (laughs) The girl's gone. And his story is so unbelievable that as, as they say, even his mother wouldn't believe it. Yeah. Which is true. (laughs) It's absolutely true. Then we have a scene, which is not in the script that we have, which is at Remington's apartment with Remington assuring Alfred that they will find the money and you got to stop with this self-destructive bent. Uh, Alfred doesn't understand why Steele should worry about what happens to him. It's not his headache. And then Steele begins telling the story that when a man saves another man's life, it entails a certain responsibility. He says that before he became Remington Steele, before I dedicated myself to the service of others, yeah. 
<laughs> caught himself on that. And then he yeah. gives a summary of his early life story, which is a somewhat abbreviated version of the story he told Amy Fogelson in Steel in the News. And it's kind of his mm-hmm. side of the story that Daniel told Laura in Sting of Steel. And he concludes by saying that someone came along and taught him self-respect and imbued him with a certain clarity of thought and a certain sense of direction. And perhaps he's merely attempting to repay that person through Alfred. And Alfred responds really in kind of the same way that Sheldon Corey did in Science Steel and Delivered. You've got everything. Confidence, success, silk shirts. I can't imagine you being like that. And Steele tries to give a rousing response saying, it just goes to show you that we all have moments of self-doubt and despair. The trick is to hang on until they pass. Have you ever heard the, this is going to sound rather random, but have you ever heard the poem Richard Corey? I've heard the title. Um, Okay, so (laughs) it's a really short poem, but essentially it, the first few verses are detailing everything that Richard Corey has, right? Whenever he went downtown, Mm -hmm. people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from soul to crown. And then it talks about how he fluttered pulses when he talked and his smile glittered when he walked and he was rich and he had everything that everybody wanted that made them wish they were him. And then the last verse of the poem says, so on we worked and waited for the light and went without the meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. And that made me think of this episode, both because we've got these repeated scenes where men who admire Steele or who look up to Steele, whose lives have kind of gone to hell, (laughs) are commenting on how Steele seems to have everything. And why would he ever have a reason to despair or have a reason to be unhappy. And we have Steele in these moments explaining some of his darkest points of his life and saying that, as you said, the trick is to hang on. And I kind of wonder, he says that someone came along and taught him self-respect. And clearly he's talking about Daniel here, but it occurs to me that there could also be some of this he could attribute to Laura. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Maybe not the anger true. because he's no longer feeling that anger and that sort of self-doubt, but he didn't really have a purpose when he met her. Mm. He he was going from con to con and not really settling anywhere. So I, I wonder if some of this is attributed to Laura as well. Yeah, um, that's probably true. Now, I would say that the Richard Corey story slips a little bit in that in the Richard Corey, they're looking at somebody and they've got this dark life behind this facade that they're putting on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a current thing. That's a current event. Whereas in yeah. Steele's case, it's it's really more like you're looking at somebody and they say, well, yeah, you see me now, but you don't know where I started from. And people yeah. just, yeah, they can't comprehend how could you have... You know, no, I can't imagine you started from that place because of where you are. There's no way that I could comprehend myself yeah. starting from this place and getting to where you are. And so there's this yeah. sense of disbelief that you could have ever been this bad. It, you could have never have been in my position or any similar position. You You can't understand what I'm feeling because look at you now. There's no way you were there ever. Yeah. It's like people imagine that you were born 
know, yeah. fully grown, <laughs> fully confident, you know, that sort of thing. Or kids that, that look at their parents and not realize that their parents were ever young and stupid. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. You don't understand what it's like to be a kid. It's like, yeah, kind of do, actually. Dude, and, I did that 25 <laughs> years ago. I did that 50 yeah. years ago. I was there. <laughs> yes. So next we're at the bank, and Alfred, Laura, and Steele are being escorted by the security guard that we saw previously. Yep. And Laura and Remington have been introduced as Alfred's cousins, first cousins, once removed on his mother's side of the tree. Yeah. And the security guard is asking these seemingly innocuous questions about Laura and Remington, suggesting that yep. he didn't realize that Alfred didn't have any relatives in Cleveland. I don't get the reference. I think it was. What's Cleveland got to do with anything? I guess it's just a place that they randomly picked to say that they were from so that they could say they were visiting. <laughs> well, yeah, but why would the security guard say, well, I never knew you had any relatives in Cleveland. Well, what does it matter? I mean, it just, I the two know. things just don't it, seem to make a, sense because yeah, it, it's a it bit implies of an odd line. that there was some relationship between Alfred and Cleveland and the security guard. That yeah, it could have been, any, been any place, really. That's a good point. Yeah. And yep. a security guard wouldn't, wouldn't make a big deal out of it. Anyway, so. I also don't think a security guard would give them a tour. Like, <laughs> it seems, I'm a little confused about this. This is the Federal Reserve. It's mm-hmm. not, it's, it's not, it's not a, it's not a tourist attraction. Well, it's not I, what I, you Granted, think it is. he is the bad guy and we, but you don't just. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there, there's there's several questions. First of all, if Alfred works there, why would he need to have somebody let him in anywhere? Yeah. He would be able to show him the, his office because he would have keys to it. So obviously yeah. the office that they're going into, and it's really not an office. From what I could see, it looks like it's a conference room. Now, yeah. Because it looks like there's a very large open floor plan with maybe some large floor standing Xerox machines in the background that I can see. And it's like, okay, so, but he works there. And if they're going to show him where he works, then he's going to take him to his office. But he's not yeah. taking him to his office because he has to have the security guard let him in. So why is he even taking him there in the first place? Yeah, it, it's, mm, yeah, it, it's, it's a very confusing scene. <laughs> it just seemed really strange that they're being escorted into a bank. After banking hours and being allowed to see, like, this is where the vaults are and this is where the money mm-hmm. that's going to be destroyed is. And we're just giving them a tour. It, it, yeah. it seemed very odd, especially from the villain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mm, uh, the villain might do some strange things because it's part of, yeah. like you said, the gaslighting. But anyway, yeah, so true. yeah, the villain, the villain, <laughs> the security guard lets him into the room <laughs> and leaves them. <laughs> So he, he 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 lets them in the room, and then he leaves them, and then they sneak back out, and they go down the hall to another office, which is apparently the one that has the phone extension that they had the phone number for from the phone bill. And it turns mm-hmm. out that it's the office of J.P. Whitcomb, the district supervisor, who Alfred knows of, but he doesn't know. He's never seen him. And, of course, as he's telling them all this Laura's looking through the desk calendar on the desk and she comments that Whitcomb's calendar hasn't been used for a while except for an address and Alfred continues talking saying well he he 
knows about Whitcomb. He's the manager who signed the memo promoting him to the promoting Alfred to the assistant manager's position about two months ago. At which time Steele says, yeah, that's about the same time Angelica appeared upstairs. Yeah, it just gets worse and worse. And once again, you say the wrong thing to the wrong person. And uh, just as Alfred thinks that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, he realizes that it's actually just a train coming right at him. Yeah, and yeah pretty much. He states oh. the obvious conclusion. The only reason he was promoted was to be able to remove the money from the vault with just his signature. And that's got to hurt. I mean, being manipulated yeah. by Angelica would be painful. Realizing your relationship was a lie would be painful. But I, I don't know if this would be even more painful. But I'm re- suddenly realizing that your promotion, the thing that you thought you worked for and earned with your talent and your skill at your job was just a manipulation mm-hmm. as well. It wasn't real. It wasn't yeah. something that you earned at all. I think that would be really hard. You fit the suit. Yeah, exactly. In a sense. Yeah. He, somebody needed a body in a position. You were a body. There you go. So, yeah, it's it's one of those, yeah, you weren't good enough to get the job yourself. So, yeah, we're using you. But... Anyway, as this is all going on, Steele needs something to write on. He has something to write with this time. He yeah. just needs something to write on. So he picks <laughs> up a band of paper off the floor, which we see has the letters FRB repeatedly printed across yeah. it. And he flips it over and writes down the address from the calendar on the back of that strip. Of course, while Laura and Steele are concentrating on the desk and all this information that they're gleaning, <laughs> Alfred slips out of the office. And when Laura yeah. Steele realize that he's gone, they take out after him. Alfred races out of the bank across the street and disappears into a construction site where a new high rise building is being built. He spots an elevator platform coming down and runs toward it, opens the safety gate, steps inside to the shaft area directly in the path of the elevator as it's coming down, assuming an erect pose and waiting for that elevator to come down and crush him. (laughs) Yes. And Laura and Remington, of course, have followed him. They see what he's planning to do. They yell at him and run toward the safety door of the elevator and arrive at the door and throw it open just as the platform hits Alfred and doesn't smash him. (laughs) The floor bounces off at the top of Alfred's head, (laughs) and then the frame of it just surrounds him. And he just left there standing apparently unharmed. I would think that would give you a very serious headache, not to mention the possibility of a neck injury. So, yeah. Definitely. So, Alfred is astounded that he wasn't hurt. Steele is astounded that Alfred wasn't hurt. And apparently someone else (laughs) was astounded that Alfred wasn't hurt because somebody starts shooting at him. (laughs) At which point, Laura and Remington hit the deck. And Alfred, in a panic, doesn't hit the deck. He runs off screaming. I think someone's yeah. trying to kill me. <laughs> <sighs> you spent the whole episode up to now trying to kill yourself. And now you're upset that somebody else is trying to help you with it. <laughs> yeah. So the shooting stops. Laura and Steele get up off the ground. And of course, Alfred is gone. Then we have a time jump. It's now Sunday, 345 P or 345 AM. Sorry. Got my clocks reversed there. So, 3.45 a.m., Sunday morning, Murphy and Sherry are back at the agency's office making phone calls, trying to find Alfred when Laura and Remington come in. 
And Murphy updates him. He says he's tried Alfred's house. He's tried the bank, tried all the hospitals, nothing. He's just gone. And Steele loses it. I, I think this is one of the first times we've really yeah. seen him totally lose it. Yeah, he gets really upset. And I think. Yeah, can you think of any other time he's responded like this? Not in this season. I mean, we'll see a few others later on, but this, I think, is particularly personal as he has spent this entire episode trying to help Alfred. And he does see, he had that moment with Alfred where he said, you got to hang on. It's going to get better. This is really frightening to him. It's, he, he'll consider it a failure if, if Alfred does indeed hurt himself. And so, yeah, this is probably the first time we've really seen him get this upset. Yeah. And his, his comment is, we're not going to find him on the telephone. Is, no. I mean, I can understand the frustration, but at the same point, you just don't go running off hither and yon on impulses and whims. You've got to have some sort of plan. You have to have some idea of where you're going. And so, yeah, he's being a little bit unreasonable and, and a little bit hard on Murphy here i think unfairly yeah because he bites his head off what else is there to do yeah absolutely well he regains some composure and laura says look we're all trying to find alfred and Steele suggests well let's check the beaches of the train stations and references the yep. scene from the star is born and anna karenina and then here's where sherry starts going downhill for me she chimes in, or the reservoir where Richard Chamberlain drank contaminated water in the Music Lovers, which is a movie reference that isn't in Judith's book, presumably because it's not Steele uh, delivering it. Yeah, yeah. But you know, Steele and Murphy both look at her in surprise, though each I think has got a different flavor of that surprise. Steele is looking at Sherry, maybe as a kindred spirit, and Murphy's confused because who is this woman? First, she's a stewardess. Now, then she was a psychologist. Now she's a movie buff. I think that Murphy looks properly horrified. He, he's now like maybe in his mind going, wait a minute. Is she is she the female version of Steel? Did I just sleep with Steel? <laughs> you know, that kind of not exactly. But there's a, a psychoanalysis moment to be had here. And I will say, I don't think this is where Sherry goes downhill for me. It's perfectly logical that she could be a pop culture fan or like movies. I think it's later on where she has the ability to work the crane that I'm like, okay, this is a little much. But I, I, I think this is a quirk of personality. <laughs> but this is the, for me, this is the first step. For me, this is the first step because it just happens to come up at a moment's notice and it just happens to be the perfect solution or possible solution to a problem it just it was just a little bit too convenient for me is, is all i'm saying all i'm saying too is that she hid her identity and knows a ton about movies and see and that's the other thing that i think murphy's <laughs> experiencing here is that he's looking at okay she says she's a uh, stewardess and she says she's a psychologist now she's movie buff uh, i'm starting to have some serious concerns about this woman's psychological stabilities Either that or she's a female version of Mr. Steele and Murphy had sex with her. <laughs> family show, family show, family show. I'm d okay, Murphy spent time with her and he's, I think, a little horrified right now with the implications of what he's done, which I enjoy. <laughs> well, anyway, Murphy surrenders and says, fine, 
Sherry can do the movies. He'll do the driving. And then they, they exit. Laura wonders out loud. The same question that you asked earlier. Yeah. Where did meet? Murphy meet her? But she realizes that Steele is not doing so well. He's burdened with guilt, no. saying, you pull someone off the bridge, you think you're doing them a favor. But every corner we turn around on this one seems to just make it worse for him. And he's not wrong. Exactly. I mean, as he says, at least before, Alfred believed he had a girlfriend and a promotion. What does he have now? I've destroyed it all, basically, is what he's saying. Yeah. And, of course, Laura responds with, well, he has you. And I think, I know Laura means that as some sort of assurance, but he doesn't seem to yeah. take it that way. He is really down on himself right now. No, and um, but I think it's a good moment to show that while he doesn't see himself as somebody of value in the sense of, of being important enough to help a man like Alfred, Laura does. And this is, I think, more of a line that's meant to show us, the viewer, that he, she is starting to see him as more than just this guy that screws up her cases a lot and she has an attraction to. Mm -hmm. She's starting to see that there's a side of him that is genuinely compassionate towards others and needs to help and wants to help and is able to inspire people or 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 help like she sees him as as a person of value even if he doesn't see it so i think it's that kind of reassurance that tells us that she's starting to see more of who he is mm -hmm. from his perspective though i mean he's he, obviously he's down on himself because yeah every time he turns around he's he's knocking down another yeah wall that alfred has been invested in you know he's he's built around himself and now Steele's knocking it all down. But also I think I think maybe this is the first time in his life, in Steele's life, that he has felt responsible for the well being of someone else. Yes. For whatever yeah. reason. And he doesn't know if he's up to it. He doesn't he doesn't know how to handle nope. it. He doesn't know what to do with it. He's just he doesn't think he's up to it. He's never been there before. Yeah. So And that makes sense because he's never had any steady roots. He doesn't have any kids. He doesn't have Mm -hmm. nieces or nephews or people that rely on him on a steady regular basis yeah and he's never had a relationship with anybody that was long-term enough that yep. they they were that dependent upon each other he had felicia yeah but obviously that didn't turn out well because they both basically no. <laughs> abandoned each other mid you know mid crime so yeah yeah <laughs> anyway seems like we have a small time jump laura and remington are at a nightclub presumably lingerie <laughs> And okay, so well, no, it is lingerie because it says outside the sign. And yeah, Steele is not impressed by the nightclub's clientele. He says, ah, looking at these people, one's self esteem can't help but improve. I have a bone to pick with this scene. Okay. Yeah, I do. I every other place that they go, they dress the part. Mm -hmm. They go out west, they have cowboy hats. They everywhere they go. I want to see him in leather pants and safety pins. Why are they not dressed up? <laughs> I, I, well, they are in character because see. they presented themselves as <laughs> casting agents for a movie studio. Damn it. This is an opportunity <laughs> lost is what I am saying, because that would have been hilarious. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen um, 21 Jump Street, but in the last episode of the first season... No. Um, Johnny Depp's character goes undercover in a punk club and he has to dress up and, and he's, he comes out and he's got all those 
you know, the safety pins on the hair and whatever. And he's talking about the punk scene and he's kind of talking to his partner and saying, oh, it's this whole subculture and they rely on each other. And and he's giving all the psychology behind it. And, and Penhall, his partner says, I don't need to listen to a psychology report or a sociology report from a guy in leather plaid bond in Scottish plaid bondage pants. And <laughs> I want to, I, I just want to see, but his comment about one self-esteem can't help but improve. Ouch. Because what's interesting here too, is that they're not much older than most of the people in there. And yet they clearly appear as adult, whereas everybody around them is sort of, I don't want to say like kids, but, in their 20s, being in their 20s. And it's something I thought about going back to the beginning that Laura and Steele have always dressed as, as, as adult professionals in suits and, and ties and things like that. And it, it ages them in a way that's not, not a bad thing, but gives them a level of maturity that when you think about Laura being 26 in the first season, people that are that age are still going out to clubs and partying and having having that that 20s she never seems like she was Some in her 20s are, yeah. and he n- neither did he i'm not saying everybody but it just feels like they never appeared as if they were in their 20s it always kind of seemed that they were older and more adult than than everyone around them which i found kind of interesting comparatively especially when he makes that comment so but yeah i think we lost a, an opportunity <laughs> to see him in, in leather and safety pins i'm just saying <laughs> and laura too that would have been really interesting to see laura <laughs> <laughs> so they, anyway they push their way through the crowd and they're set upon by a man who looks like he escaped from the set of a bad horror movie <laughs> he's got a long makeup <laughs> scar across his forehead from one yeah. side to the other heavy black makeup around the eyes and on his cheeks a studded dog collar around his neck studded armbands studded leather black biker jacket that he's wearing but it's all good his name is ronnie chatsworth and he's heard about their movie and wants to try out <laughs> Steele apparently forgetting what he had said earlier. Said, Movie? And of course, Laura prompts him by saying, Yeah, we're supposed to be, remember, Gone with the Wind revisited? Gone with the Wind. And yep. now, interestingly enough, at that time she's saying that, somebody comes up and kicks them from behind. And I don't know if that was part of, part of the action that was actually plotted for the scene or not, but uh, it was interesting. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Ronnie gives them an impromptu audition. He steps back a few <laughs> steps and swings his arms to clear the room for himself. And he assumes an attitude, points at Steele and says, frankly, my dear Scarlet. And he walks forward menacingly and says, you stink. <laughs> you stink. <laughs> and apparently manages to spit on Steele's face in the process. <laughs> and. Of course, they say, yeah, it's interesting. Of course, we'd like to see you with Scarlet we had in mind. And he knows exactly who they mean. And he gives them a gesture, wait here, and walks off a few yards, grabs Angelica, who's dancing like no one's watching, and directs her gyrations (laughs) in the direction of Steel and Laura. And, uh, yeah, it doesn't work out too well for Ronnie. Uh, It takes her a moment. It it takes Angelica a moment to recognize Steel and Laura as people she saw earlier and she kicks ronnie and then begins to run away <laughs> but not a problem steel circles around in front of her so she has to stop and then she starts to run the other direction but laura has grabbed a length of chain from one of the guys at a table nearby 
wrapped it around <laughs> her fists and says, are you coming along, Angelica? Or, or I think she actually says, are you coming along, Scarlet, or do I have to get rough? Yeah. <laughs> so, that, yeah, that, that would be interesting to see Laura get rough with a length of chain. Very. I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem to fit. But no. anyway, we jump forward a few moments, and Angelica's telling Steele and Laura her story. She thought that they had been sent by Whitcomb. And, you know, they start questioning her. Yeah, he had set her up in the apartment. She was working for him Mm -hmm. under duress. She says that Whitcomb has big friends at the immigration department, or at least that's probably what he told her. And she believes, but somehow I I doubt it. It's it's a story. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, she admits that she's in the country illegally. And Whitcomb had told her that if she didn't get Alfred to take the money, he would have, he, the security guard, um, Whitcomb would have her. No, she doesn't know he's the security guard. Again, it's confusion with names. Um, I know. (laughs) So she says that Whitcomb told her that if she didn't get Alfred to take the money, Whitcomb would have her deported back to Tijuana, where she's really from, not Spain. And, of course, Laura doesn't seem impressed. In fact, she seems downright hostile. She accuses Angelica. Yeah, but Laura more so. I mean, she accuses Angelica of... Filling Alfred's balloon with hot air, a lot of sweet hot air, and then popping it by stealing his car with the money inside of it. And, of course, she doesn't deny it, but she does say that she's regretful of the deception. And when she handed the car over to Whitcomb, she realized that Whitcomb might have in mind to kill Alfred. And I would say, you know, maybe her as well. I mean, after all, if he's going to kill one, he's probably going to kill them all. In for a penny, in for a pound. And... It's at this point that Steele definitely takes up Laura's righteous indignation and says, oh, a little deception's all right, but the thought of murder upsets your delicate sensibilities, which is... This is interesting. Interesting to me, because yeah. Steele's life has been a deception. In fact, it still is a deception. And well, whenever murders reared its head, as in License to Steal, it did offend its sensibilities. So... and. It's not just that, though. He's usually the one that's taken in by the sob story. Laura's usually this, the, yeah, the cynical one who, who doesn't really believe the, the tears, the crocodile tears that we get. Think of Steel's gold with the spawn of the north. Right. Whereas Steel <laughs> is usually the one who, who kind of falls prey to a woman with doe eyes and a, and a sad story. And in this uh-huh. case, he's not having it. He doesn't he's not falling for any of it. And I, I wonder if it's to do with the fact that he, his, he has a strong instinct to protect people that he feels can't protect themselves. And maybe that's why he sometimes gets taken in by these women because they, they play that card and, and it, you know, a beautiful face and a sad story kind of works, but with steel, he's already protecting someone. He's protecting Alfred and he's protecting Alfred even from Angelica. It, it feels like. So I, I kind of get where he's coming from. It, I don't think he would have had such an issue with deception and lies if, if it weren't for the fact that he's seen the damage it's done to a man that he's trying to help. It's just, I find it a little bit interesting that he says that, and yet he is the very embodiment <laughs> of that same philosophy. I don't mind conning people. I don't mind lying to people. I don't mind taking advantage of people. Just, it's not a good thing to kill him. Well, yeah so anyway yeah angelica continues and says that uh 
or suggests, she doesn't actually come right out and say it, that she had feelings toward Alfred in return. Yeah. But fearing for his safety, she went back to the apartment to tell him everything and to warn him about Whitcomb. And she waited for him all night. He never came back. She finally got scared and then left to go out looking for him, which is apparently when Alfred pointed her out to Laura and Steele. And apparently Angelica's story tracks for Laura and Steele because now they seem to believe her and her claim of feelings. Mm -hmm. And their attitude seems to really shift at this point as she's telling the story. And Angelica's excited when she realizes that Alfred was with them and not dead as she seemed to have feared, which again would suggest that probably she should be fearful for her life as well. Yep. And not out at a club. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, probably (laughs) not. Steele says that, uh, yeah, Alfred was with us, but he's not now. And Laura cuts him off. Presumably she doesn't want him to say too much at the moment because after all, every time he's opened his mouth in this case, it's only made things worse. (laughs) So... She tells Angelica, if Alfred really matters to you, where can we find him? Where could we go to look for him? Is there some place, a favorite spot that he might go to if he was in trouble? And she hesitates and then says, well, you know, sometimes when he's down, he'd go walking on the bridge, which (laughs) sets Steele into something of a panic since it was from that bridge that Steele had stopped him from jumping earlier. Which you'd think that he would have thought of that because, I mean, that's where he found him first. I don't know. You'd think that that would have been one of the places they checked. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You would have. So, anyway, there's a time jump. It's Sunday, 5.53 a.m. We see the limo approach the bridge and then stop as Steele and then Laura and then Angelica get out and run to the edge. They look down. Can't really see anything, so Steele climbs up onto that safety fence to get a better look, and we see that he sees what he feared. Yeah. It's a body. And it looks like it could be Alfred. They make their way down to where the body lay. Steele approaches while Laura and Angelica hold back. And Steele begins to roll the body over to ascertain if it is, in fact, Alfred. And then the body springs to life, which surprises Steele. And he grabs him and says, you're alive. You're alive. You're alive. Why are you alive? Why are you alive? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's good. Yeah. So Alfred explains that realizing his promotion was part of the setup, That was pretty much the thing that dropped him to the bottom of the barrel. But when somebody started shooting at him, he got a bit indignant. After all, he says, it's one thing for me to decide to kill myself, but it's something entirely different when somebody else decides that they should shoot me and kill me. And yeah, that's not good. So (laughs) Laura asks, well, if you were so determined to live, why did you run away? And Alfred says, well, I couldn't let you take any more risks, especially with the killer out there to get him which is why he returned to his thinking place. He wanted to figure out his next move, which he decided was to try and find Angelica, except that he fell asleep. And as he's saying this, Angelica approaches and apologizes, sort of, kind of. She says if she had to do all over again, she wouldn't change a thing. (sighs) Thanks. (laughs) Except, okay, you know, the whole getting shot at thing. But yeah, everything else I would do all over again. (laughs) where I lied to you and set you up and yeah, that part. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I do it all over again. So Laura attempts to intercede for Angelica and tells Alfred, well, look, it was Angelica that led us to you. So for what it's worth, she didn't have to do that. And 
Angelica says that if she had known what Wickham was going to do with the money, she'd say, but she doesn't. So now that she knows he's all right, she can go back to Mexico. And as she's walking off, Alfred just stands there. He looks at Steele as, okay, what do I do now? And yeah. Steele gestures, go, go, get her, catch her up. Yeah. Don't let her get away. So Alfred calls her. She stops and they start talking. And Remington and Laura are left alone to talk. And Laura's frustrated. Yeah. Love conquers all. Yeah. Yeah. So what? But we don't have $2.3 million. And if we don't find it soon, love will have to conquer a very long prison sentence. Yeah. And their only, <laughs> their only lead seems to be the address that they found in Whitcomb's calendar, which Steele says he has next to his heart as he pulls out the strip of paper that he'd written it on and shows her. Next, we're at a gun shop, which this kind of seems weird to me. It's obvious that the gun shop is closed. Laura's beating on the door, and it seems like the owner lives on premises. Yeah, that's what I got from it. That he's, which is not uncommon to have your, your storefront be connected to your home. Like a lot of stores here, people live above, especially if it's in a, like a city center downtown area. At least where mm-hmm. in my city, there's a lot of places where like the apartment is up top and the store is below it. So uh, there were friends of ours that used to own a video rental store back in the day when we still rented videos um, and it was out of their <laughs> house. So like it was, you'd go into the, the main area for the store but there was a side door as well that went in it was a big house so i mean a gun shop is a bit weird i don't know if i'd want to live on the premises of a gun shop but i don't know i guess maybe it's no different than any other store (laughs) i think in decades past in the u.s this sort of arrangement was more common where you you lived right behind your store or just above it but you know these days with urban planning (laughs) <laughs> that's kind of gone out of out of vogue. It's not really done as much anymore, I don't think, um, mm. which is one of the reasons why we have such traffic problems and such pollution problems is because people have to drive so far to get from home to work instead of yeah. living where they work, literally in some cases, or at least in the same neighborhood. But yeah, it just it seemed like an odd an odd arrangement to present in a 1980s show, but I could be remembering it wrong. I don't remember it at all. (laughs) Yeah, he's not happy about being woken up at 7 o'clock on a Sunday morning. He he shows up at the door, shotgun in hand, demanding to know why they're there at that time of day. And this (laughs) is where, again, Laura shines when it's impromptu. I love this bit. (laughs) I love it. It's her dad's birthday. (laughs) And and with his condition, who knows how many more he'll have. And I know he got his favorite gun ever. (laughs) from you a few months back and if Clark here hadn't lost it, lost it. <laughs> oh, was How I was supposed I to know supposed it was in the, the moose's moose. head <laughs> this is this is a great uh, bit it really is and and again like I said so it shows that, you know like he picks up what she's throwing down and runs with it <laughs> yeah and it shows that when it's off the cuff Laura does a pretty good job yeah it's only when <laughs> it's planned out in advance and she's trying to to Basically, run the script that she falls apart. Yeah. So, anyway, he lets them all in, says, I suppose a dying man deserves to have his favorite piece close by. <laughs> Just try and buy it quietly. I, and inside the store. I, the Canadian, the, I'm sorry, the Canadian in me is just baffled by that concept, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't get it. I don't, I don't. I don't even think I've well, ever been know, in a store where, 
Like, we don't have... Like, there's the odd store up north, like the odd Walmart or something up north where they might have guns, but there's no... Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever been in a store where guns are sold. Like, ever. So well, I, I think in this case, it's... It, it's more about his favorite piece. It's somebody who has something that they treasure <laughs> and yeah, that's fair. they should have it with them if they want to, you know, when they, when they pass on. So, you know, it could be anything. Somebody collects Batman memorabilia or they're into yeah, cars sure. and they want to have their favorite car. You know, they want to be sitting in their favorite car when they die or some, you know, something like that. That's, I think that's really the, the point. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but in this particular case, it's it's a gun. So it's inside the funny. store owner's looking through his records, and he's trying to find this mythical gun purchase that Daddy has made. And <laughs> as he's doing that, he looks at Laura and Angelica and says, "Are you two really sisters?" And without funny. skipping a beat, Angelica says that. Funny. Most people can tell us right off, <laughs> which is good. She, I like her again. Yeah, doesn't miss a beat. So after a moment, the store owner closes the book and says he can't find any record of any purchase by a J.P. Whitcomb and says, look in the cabinet, see what you can find that looks like it, point it out to me. And, of course, as they're doing that, Steele and Alfred are wandering around through the store, and (laughs) Alfred demonstrates his ignorance of guns and lack of common sense by picking up a gun at random and pointing it at his face. Dumb. Well, to be fair, I doubt they'd have it loaded in the store. Well, that's not the point. You just, you, you always <laughs> assume a gun is loaded. Always. So, yeah, don't point it at anybody. Don't point it at yourself unless you are willing to deal with the consequences. Anyway, back at the counter, Angelica points out the gun that they're looking for, but it's just a standard service revolver commonly used by police officers. and gun owner doesn't say it but security guards Mm -hmm. and the only thing she noticed is different is that the father's gun had yellow wooden grips what's interesting thinking just about that's that little bit between steel and alfred is when Mm -hmm. he takes it away from him he says they're highly overrated you just point them away from you and shoot i wonder if this was the show kind of going back to their their running joke that they can't ever find their gun and they don't, and, and Steele has a, a genuine distaste for guns. So he's, mm-hmm. he's, it's kind of just like that. They're highly overrated. You just point away and shoot, but they never have theirs. So what would he know? You know, that kind of um, <laughs> mission statement, I guess, of the show that, that they don't really like them and they're trying to avoid you. And not even that they don't like them, but it's just more of a sophisticated show. They're not a shoot them up kind of right. thing. So I just yeah. thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> So anyway, as all this is going on, Murphy and Sherry show up and deliver some bad news. They've located J.P. Whitcomb at the Sleepy Meadows Memorial Park. He's yeah. been dead for Whoops. two months. Two months? Well, the script says six, but anyway. And of course, upon hearing the news, Alfred is confounded and Angelica faints. And <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry about your dad. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. And on his oh, birthday, dad. too. I'm so sorry. And on his birthday. And on his birthday. <laughs> oh, there's another time jump. It's now 4.28 p.m. At the office, the team is conferring, and they realize that whoever's behind the scam is probably somebody working at the bank, somebody who knew Whitcomb was dead and has been using his name in his office. And they've got less than a half a day to find the money, 
get it back into the bank, and destroy it before it's discovered missing. Alfred suggests that it would probably be too risky for the person behind the scam to be carrying it around. A lot of money, pretty bulky, and would probably find some place to hide it. But their only clue to the identity of their scammer proved to be a dead end, which is the address for J.P. Whitcomb. Steele pulls out the strip of paper that he had previously written the address on, and he drops it on his desk. It's useless now, except that Alfred recognizes it as one of the straps used to bundle condemned currency. Laura asks Steele where he got it, and of course Steele says, well, from the floor of Whitcomb's office. Laura concludes that whoever's behind the scam is keeping the money in the bank where nobody would look for it, safe from theft due to all the security, and so now they know where the money's likely hidden. But security has been shutting down the building for the night, and they won't be able to get in. So Laura's brilliant idea, let's break into the bank. Which is, I mean, we've kind of done this already mm-hmm. a couple of times now. So in that sense, it's not its not as novel as it used to be. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's the Federal Reserve, so. Well, yeah, Steele does pull her aside and gives a somewhat inaccurate summary of the situation, saying that she's talking about the Federal Reserve Bank of the U.S. government which is not technically true, and not some liquor store with a simple triple arm and a trusty deadbolt and a sleep, mm. sleepy schnauzer. <laughs> <laughs> Are we thinking of happy? <laughs> yes, I think so. Although, wasn't he, was he a schnauzer? No, I'm he not, wasn't. He was a basset hound, but okay, still it was I, yeah. just made me think of the, I'm not up the on idea dogs, of like a... Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Steele says that the bank could be breached given sufficient time and planning, but they only have a few hours. Laura points out that they have something that they can use to make up for that deficiency. They have Alfred Hollis, the man who ran away when somebody was trying to kill them or trying to kill him because he didn't want to see Laura and Steele get killed. So. Then she challenges his sense of honor. Yeah. Well, this is a little bit <laughs> underhanded and devious of her. She, she challenges his sense of honor and responsibility by asking if maybe there's more to pulling people off of bridges than you bargained for. Yeah, I don't like this line for a couple of reasons. One, it, it challenges his sense of honor. But two, it also makes him, at the end of the day, he's not responsible for what Alfred does. Alfred is a grown mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. So to imply to him that he has to do this or Alfred might kill himself or just mm-hmm. it, it it puts that it's emotional that manipulation it's it's yeah it's manipulative in a way that's that's kind of gross i don't yeah. i don't like the the line either mm-hmm. yeah it's it's kind of like the uh bad guy who takes hostages and then says well if you don't give me what i want and i kill these hostages yeah. it's your fault yeah exactly yeah yeah it's it's trying to shift responsibility for one's own actions onto somebody else and using it to emotionally manipulate them. It's one thing for Steele to try to help Alfred and to feel responsible, but he isn't at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So having Laura make that comment is, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Alfred doesn't know how he can help, but he, you know, after all, he's not an architect or an engineer, and he doesn't know how the building's designed and set up. But Steele tells him to not think of it as a building, but as a system and the, think about the process. And he says, for example, after the money's destroyed, what happens to it? Alfred says, once it's been shredded, it goes through a tube into a central pulverizing bin and then continues up to the roof into a dumpster, which is exactly what Steele wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. So then we have a time jump and it's now dark. The limo pulls up outside of the construction site that we saw earlier across the street from the bank. 
Steele, Murphy, and Laura, and Sherry get out. And Steele, Laura, and Murphy are all dressed in black. Sherry still has on her street clothes. Interesting. You'd think that somebody could have found something for her to dress in that would be more (laughs) We're doing crime. You need to dress like you're doing crime. Yeah. Dress for crime. (laughs) Dress code is crime. (laughs) Yeah. Not bright colors. Anyway. Murphy looks over at one of the cranes at the construction site and says he's not 100% certain he knows how to operate it. And then this is when Sherry completely jumps the shark and says, no yes, sweat. This is where she jumps I the shark. I used to work construction I during the it. summers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I roll my eyes here because it's like, okay, all right. I get that they needed this for the plot. And I get that it's also kind of meant to show like Murphy really becoming engaged, in, interested and intrigued by this woman because that's, of course, Part of the what she's displaying is kind of the qualities that he liked about Laura. It's just exaggerated mm-hmm. to the nth degree, basically. So, yeah, he's... I could have bought him more... She can do everything. Yeah, I, I could have bought this and the movie thing more if something had happened earlier on in the episode that set it up so that it wasn't yeah. just one of those, oh, I'm going to pull it out of my back pocket things. Yeah, fair enough. So, anyway, Murphy and Sherry climb into the cab of the crane, and Laura and Steele climb onto the beam that is attached to the crane. And Laura reveals she has an issue with heights. And Steele says, yeah, me too. (laughs) In the cab, Murphy hotwires the crane and starts it. Sherry starts operating it, raising the beam with Laura and Steele on it. And as it's partway up, she begins to swing the beam with Laura and Steele on it toward the bank. But the hot wire job hasn't held. The crane jerks to a stop, nope. which causes Laura to lose her footing, leaving her dangling as she holds on for dear life with just one hand. And it's a good thing they changed the script because as nope. Steele works to reach Laura as she labors to grab his outstretched hand, all the while telling her not to look down, which foreshadows season two episode 13 high flying steel yeah in the script they actually have it the other way around laura is still on the beam steel falls oh and she's trying to get him interesting but since steel's the catcher in high flying steel this is a nice yeah. nice setup this change this makes more sense yeah. yeah it does so it does i don't know if they had the basic story for high flying steel already set up at this point and so they modified it to kind of flow into that or if it's just coincidental but it works i think it functions as more of a trust exercise when it's laura being the one dangling i mean this has been her metaphorically throughout the entire season dangling on this cliff of uncertainty not sure whether she can trust him not sure whether she's it, it, it i think that's the purpose of this because really it doesn't matter who falls but laura has always been the person who has always picked herself back up she's not used to relying on people so when he reaches out his hand, she has to trust that he's going to catch her. And that's a big deal if she's dangling above, you know, on a rooftop, nearly like a, a, a building's height mm-hmm. from the ground. You got to trust that person that you're reaching out to that they're going to pull you up. So yeah. I think it was probably for that reason. Because honestly, they're not that different in weight. Steel's a skinny dude. Yeah, that's true. So anyway, Laura gets back on the beam. As Murphy is working on restoring the crane operation. And once they get the crane operating again, they continue the process of getting Steele and Laura to the roof of the bank. And once they arrive there, 
Laura and Steele climb off the beam and move over to the ducting coming from the inside of the building. But the near miss is given Laura pause. She says, hey, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe we shouldn't go with it. And that line, maybe sh- we shouldn't go through with it, makes a little less sense after they switch the fall around, but it still kind of works. The yeah. problem is, of course, that they won't have another opportunity to recover the money. And that's yeah, there's only out. one way down. <laughs> anyway, yeah. And then there's the problem of getting down. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Another ride on the crane. <laughs> well, we already did that. Let's not do that again. So yeah. let's go ahead and go on with it. They get the ducting open. Laura drops down through the ducting to the bin down below. Steel follows her. And, of course, they find themselves in a bin full of shredded and pulverized money. And yeah. as, <laughs> as they wait for the guard to come around and finish, finish his round, Steele says, I've always wanted to roll around in millions of dollars <laughs> with a beautiful woman. Curious how one's fantasies are fulfilled. So. I actually really like that line. <laughs> because, yeah, it is. I mean, that's literally what they're doing. They're rolling around in millions, millions of dollars. It's just well. not quite. Except, how you'd except it's not dollars it. anymore. Now it's just pulp. Paper. <laughs> just paper. Yeah, yeah, just paper. So anyway, Steele reveals that having almost lost her out there when she slipped and nearly fell, he's realized that he's not prepared for that possibility. Hmm. Is this comment. where they, yeah, is this where they have an, exclu- is, this the, is this where they become exclusive? This is my question, because I've kind of been asking this the whole way around once they started kind of sort of having a romantic relationship. I think it might be on Laura's part, because when when she says, maybe it's time we started fulfilling some other fantasies, and Steele says, whose, yours or mine? And she says, ours. Ours is a pretty telling statement. Yeah, I'm not sure at this point that they're moving into exclusive exclusive, but I'll agree they're moving into more exclusive than not exclusive. <laughs> There's a t-shirt. More exclusive than not exclusive. <laughs> well, you, you, you know what I'm saying, though. I mean, they're... they're I, know, I know. A little, a little yeah, less playing mean. the field. Not, not completely done with it, but a little less of it. So... Yeah, they're not moving up to a, they're each other's place with a U-Haul, but... Yes. Yeah. So then they kiss, and Steele says, as much as he'd like to continue their conversation... Uh, they don't have time, and they begin working their way out of the bin. So is that what I like we're how he sees making out as a conversation. <laughs> I was like, oh, he sees making out as a conversation. <laughs> and it is a little bit of an unusual spot for a conversation, but at least it's True. not a morgue. <laughs> yeah, that's gee, at least they're not making out in a morgue. There's no dead bodies around, so I call this a that's win. Right. <laughs> yeah. No one's shooting at, least, at them. At least they're making progress. They're moving up yeah. in the world. <laughs> so Laura and Steele work their way toward Whitcomb's office. And then once inside, they begin searching through filing cabinets and drawers and desks and everything else. But they don't, they don't find anything until Laura spots some odd indents on the desk blotter that seems strangely out of place. She shows them to Steele. Steele looks up and directly above the desk. He sees that it's, it's, Suspended ceilings. It's got those little tiles that you push up and you can get into it. Hmm. Interesting. He makes the connection between the spots on the desk blotter and the wooden chair near the desk. So he picks it up. It's a perfect fit. And so he climbs up onto the chair or onto the desk and then onto the chair. 
lifts the panel from the suspended ceiling and reaches in and begins pulling out bundles of money. He comments that it's a trifle more substantial than Pennies from Heaven, which is another movie reference. Yeah. So yep. we've we got several movie references in here. There's a sound, somebody fiddling with doorknob, and Laura quickly hides beneath the desk. The security guard enters the room, and Steele begins prattling on about rodent problems, claiming to be oh, Montgomery Crewman, <laughs> State Board of Examiners, yeah. or State Board of Exterminators. <laughs> Did he forget uh, that they met the security guard yeah. and he was introduced as Alfred's cousin? I mean, <sighs> even if they hadn't, even if they hadn't, he's up on, he's pulling yeah. money yeah. from the, there's no way, none of this is going to go over, even if that was yeah. a legitimate security man. Like, that's never going to work. It, it's, it was a questionable story to begin with, but at least yeah. <laughs> if you didn't have this other story that contradicted it, you might have been able to sell it. Anyway, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if he can sell that, but <laughs> I guess it depends on you'd the intelligence really, of the guard. Yeah, I was gonna say you'd have to have a really dumb security guard. <laughs> anyway, the guard pulls out his gun and Steele comments about the gun, noting that it's got a yellow wooden grips. Yeah. And seems to be the same gun that Angelica saw in the possession of the man she knew as Whitcomb. And the security guard confronts Steele and says you're not an exterminator. And Steele says, oh, you say, you say you're Whitcomb, but you're not Whitcomb. And the guard says, no, Whitcomb's dead. But go ahead, keep pulling my money out of the ceiling. It'll save me the trouble. And, yeah. of course, they began exchanging notes about the case and what happened. And We learned that security guard Erskine wasn't satisfied with the possibility of a mere government pension. And there was all this money laying around that was just going to be destroyed. So, yeah, why not? I kind of sympathize a little bit with him in that <laughs> sense. Like, that would really suck working this maybe not so great paying job and watching all this money just get destroyed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, he, he wanted to help himself to some of it, but he knew security was tight. He needed somebody to steal it for him. And Alfred was the perfect dupe. Somebody who needed someone in his life. Somebody he could believe he was helping. but. Since the security guard didn't have the authority to do anything, he faked Alfred's promotion using the Whitcomb persona, saying that's a great thing about bureaucracy. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And the it's proper true. memo signed by the proper official, and nobody even, even bothers to ask if he's still alive. So he acknowledges that his original plan was to kill Alfred and make it look like a suicide, but Alfred never came back to the apartment. So he had to improvise, yeah. just like he's going to have to do with Steele. And at that moment, Laura jumps up from under the desk, pushes the chair, throwing Steele off of it and into the security guard. Steele and the security guard wrestle for a few moments, and then the security guard escapes Steele's grasp. But Laura jumps in from behind and grabs him and spins him around for Steele to punch. And Steele knocks teamwork him out. Teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> I, I've got written down here. It's good teamwork. <laughs> Nothing was planned or communicated, yet both yeah. seem to instinctively know what to do. So, yeah, they're pretty much in sync. I wrote here, the teamwork here reminds me of the sleep clinic episode. It's risky, but it works. Yeah. Because they did something very similar with the guy uh, in the sleep clinic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's just like they're, they're reading each other's minds. So. Yep. And, of course, Steele can't let the moment pass without comment, and he jokingly criticizes Laura for having taken so long to make her entrance. Yeah. Or did it take all that time for her to think up such a brilliant stunt? And she admits, yeah, I was milking it. 
Yeah. You know, because after all, you saved my life earlier this evening. I wanted to return the favor, but so far you weren't there yet. So <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so there's a time jump till Monday morning, 8.46 a.m. Bernice enters the office. She's pulling off her coat. And Alfred and Angelica walk out of Steele's office. Yeah. <laughs> Who are you? What are you doing here? Is what her question is. Contemplating she, matrimony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but first, there's some investigators we have to talk to down at the bank. Yeah. And they leave. It's good to be alive. Yeah. It's great to be alive, don't you think? And as they leave, <laughs> Murphy and Sherry come out of Steele's office, and they're holding hands, and Sherry is absolutely gushing. Mm -hmm. Stop apologizing, yeah, Murphy. This has weekend. been... Yes. <laughs> I mean, you really allowed me to be just who I am. Let's see. What was that? A stewardess, <laughs> a psychologist, a movie buff, a <laughs> movie crane buff. operator. Is there is there anything yeah. else that you, you do that we haven't discussed yet? Well, she's going to analyze his performance. Oh, well, yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what Murphy tells Bernice. Although, <laughs> yeah. He, do, I got to say, that's, I think that's his last line of the entire series. That's mm -hmm. Murphy's rap. Yeah, he says, "With any luck, to have my performance analyzed." Wink, wink, and yep. yeah, okay. <laughs> so, so Lauren Steele are the next to emerge, and Bernice, she's at it. She demands to know what's been happening. Yeah, and of course so they confused. they just kind of gush out with, "Well, we prevented a man from committing suicide, although trying to commit suicide actually saved his life." And we broke into a bank, and we helped see that nearly <laughs> two and a half million dollars was properly destroyed. <laughs> and of course, she doesn't believe them. Come on, be serious. Yeah. <laughs> she wants to know what's really been going on, but Steele says, sorry, right now, Laura and I have a pressing conversation to complete. Mm. He's talking about making out. Yeah. <laughs> and he's talking about completing that conversation. So, yeah, we'll let that mm -hmm. one go where that goes. But it is worth noting, again, this is where the tea and the coffee thing come from mm -hmm. full circle, because she says, it. should I even bother to make the coffee? And Laura says, no, thanks. We'll be having tea instead. Yeah. Which... Hints back to that first meeting where she asks about coffee, then tea, then fresh yeah. pot of hot water. Yeah, sure. They'll be having tea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tea and crackers. <laughs> tea and crumpets. Uh, and what is a crumpet? That's the season. Yes, that's the season. It's like a little, it's like a little biscuity thing with like little holes that you can put like butter in it. It's, mm. yeah, it's. Crumpety. It's a crumpety crumpet thing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, yes, that is the season. I would say this was probably not the strongest season finale that they could have chosen. I think that it they, felt like an epilogue. We yeah. talked about how Sting of Steel felt like the, the, the true finale, uh -huh. so to speak. This one, they used an ensemble cast, but only sort of. Bernice yeah. got one scene. Yeah. That that's crappy for yeah. for somebody like she should have we've been saying this all along, but she should have gotten more. And they've they introduced three new characters. They, they and it proves they can do an ensemble if mm -hmm. they need to. We've we we've seen it two episodes in a row. Mm -hmm. And yet I, I have to wonder with Sherry's introduction, did they already know Murphy was leaving? I'm sure they did. Because it feel it almost feels like with Sherry being introduced and Murphy having this potential partner, girlfriend, whatever, it almost feels like they were intending to go somewhere with that. But if they already knew he was leaving it, it's an odd spot to leave him on. Yeah. Well, you know, we talked about how in some of the previous episodes, particularly the handful right bill for this one, mm -hmm. there were always these little comments from the Murphy character about 
no more go get the autopsy reports murphy yeah. and various things that were indicative of murphy being dissatisfied with his role and seeing those yeah. as a reflection of james's dissatisfaction with how the role mm-hmm. had developed i think that they had a clue either that james wanted out of his contract or that they already knew that they were going to have to replace him and restructure the show because yeah that's the, you know they were getting some pressure from above to do something to make a change to the show to tighten it up a little bit or something so yeah. I, I think they knew at this point and sherry may have been kind of their parting gift to murphy <laughs> so to speak uh, what to let him to let him to let him uh finally get the girl yeah again I was going to say, I'm trying to find a way to get lucky. Yeah. <laughs> As she put it, right? Because mm-hmm. um, poor Murphy's been effectively celibate this entire season. So yeah. he at least gets gets something. Yeah. But it is unfortunate that that's all we get of Bernice in this episode because then we never see her again. Mm-hmm. And I think Janet DeMay did a fantastic job. As Bernice, uh, giving giving more to what is effectively a character with very little depth mm-hmm. in on the page. Yeah. On the page, we don't see much, and depth, not a lot but of lines she gave it Depth, no. But what she did get, she she really really did a good job with, and yeah. yeah so it's a shame that we don't see her again, and that she played very little uh, role in this episode. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I guess they. I mean. We, I, I'll never begrudge them for bringing in Mildred. Never. But no, I mean, it, it's a shame that we couldn't have had an ensemble that they couldn't have actually done something with these characters that we were first introduced to who we like. Yeah. Mildred fit into the show, but from the standpoint of her not being necessary because they already had Murphy and Bernice, yeah. you can kind of say, well, they wouldn't have had to if they'd have done with what they had better. If they'd done better with what right. they had. So, yeah. Anyway, end of the season, end of the episode, website, www.steelwatching.com. Show notes, Amazon links to the five movies that were referenced. Yeah. Which is Gaslight, Starsborn, Anna Karenina, The Music Lovers, and Pennies from Heaven. Mm-hmm. And... Other links. We have our Twitter, Facebook page, Steel Watching Facebook page, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as the group, the Steel Watchers group. That is not technically our official group, but is where where all, the, all us Steel Watchers fans gather and have a good time, and people should join because it's it's lots of fun. Yeah. So, join us next episode, season one, Bonus. top five. Yeah. The list. Do you have your top five yet? Have you settled settled on a top five yet? I'm really <laughs> bad with top fives. <laughs> and I'll probably recap oh. this this little comment in that episode. I'm really bad with top fives because I, I can never decide which one should belong in there. And then once I do get it narrowed down, I can't I can't decide on a final order usually. So we'll this see what happens. Fun. We'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess that's it that's alright we'll see you guys on the other side well almost the other side yeah. season one top five coming up next bye 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 hey everybody Eric and Sarah here just a quick announcement to let you know that 
Yes, we do appreciate everyone who listens, participates, and supports the podcast in whatever way you do. But we wanted to give an extra thank you to those who are so graciously giving to be monthly financial supporters. We are making live streams of our recording sessions available to anyone who is a monthly financial supporter. So not only can you watch us live as we record our podcast episodes, you will be getting access to the raw, behind-the-scenes, unedited version of episodes before they get officially released. And Sarah, does that include our mistakes and screw-ups and our humiliating? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it does. Every single one of them. (laughs) Every single one of them, yes. So again, this is just an extra thank you to those who are going above and beyond. But whether you choose to become a monthly financial supporter or not, we still love you. We want to say we thank you for your support, your encouragement, and your feedback. If you want to become a monthly financial supporter, please visit our website at www.steelwatching.com to sign up. 